No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And uh, before I bring on my guest, I want to uh, share a personal story and experience with all of you. And after I do that, uh, we're going to make this actually a very special podcast because even though uh, the format is that it's a conversation between you know two or more Muslims, essentially, it's basically you're getting a window to an impassioned conversation between two people uh, as if no one else was there. They're in a restaurant somewhere sitting and just talking about something and trying to come up with a positive path for the Muslim community. And actually uh, positive advice and maybe positive um, suggestions for society at large. So that's basically the, the, the format of the podcast. But today is going to be unique in a sense that we will take some questions. I will take some questions at the beginning and uh, we may... Uh, also take some questions near the end to alongside my uh, guests. So it depends on how the flow goes. Uh, if we're busy just arguing amongst ourselves, we're going to keep to those arguments and we're going to go at it, go uh, at it with each other and having this impassioned uh, discussion, arguments, conversation, jokes, uh, whatever uh, comes about, inshallah ta'ala, because that's what a natural conversation is like. That's what we're trying to keep it. It's not a formalized lecture. It's not a uh, formalized interview. It's basically nasiha, talk, uh, discussion, and so forth. All right. So uh, we, all of us, we celebrated Eid uh, not too long ago. So two weeks ago, uh, the world celebrated Eid. And uh, for many of us, it was uh, a special Eid because of the Ramadan that we had to endure and uh, to, to celebrate uh, what we would be uh, normally doing publicly, but more privately. Uh, it was unique in a very, very, uh, you know, interest in, in um, a um, global sense. Now, uh, you know, you try to call family members, you try to connect with different people uh, best as you can, FaceTime, phone, a few families, like, you know, visiting immediate family and whatnot. Uh, you know, you try to do some of those things uh, based upon, obviously, uh, regulations and recommendations that were given. So I had an opportunity, actually, to speak with my mother, uh, you know, on the phone for a little while before I visited her in person. And... Uh, you know, I, I noticed some sadness in her voice and there are a few family tragedies that have occurred uh, recently for us. And, uh, you know, obviously with the general lockdown, you know, there could be sadness emanating from that. And so I asked her, I'm like, why, you know, it seemed like, you know, um, you're somewhat sad. And so she explained that, yeah, you know, every Eid, I do get a time where I feel a little bit sadness. Every Eid, I do feel some sadness. And I asked her, I'm like, why do you feel sadness every Eid? Why do you get a little bit of that feeling of sadness? And she told me, she said, well, that's because my father used to feel some sadness every Eid. And I said, okay, well, why did my grandfather, why did your father feel sadness every Eid? Isn't this a day of celebration? 
She said uh, when his father on Eid, when he was uh, uh, coming home one day, so this was on the day of Eid, uh, he had went out to buy some gifts, some toys, some clothes for his family. So they had eight kids, five sons, three daughters. And we're talking about 1947. So this is what we're talking about. So we're talking about, uh, you know, many years ago. And so he said he went out to buy some gifts and, and whatnot for the family for because why? It's the day of Eid, it's the day of celebration. And when he was coming home, he was killed by a Hindu nationalist. And so you have a family of eight children uh, who are now fatherless and they had to leave their homes because of the racism that they experienced, because of the threat to their lives that they experienced, a family of eight kids without their father, without their main breadwinner, had to make an exodus. They had to leave their home in India and they had to go to Pakistan. And uh, in that year, my great-grandmother had to raise these kids. So imagine that year, not only travel, but then henceforth raise eight kids by herself. And my grandfather was about eight years old at that time. He was the third child. And of course, this is going to be ingrained and implanted in his memory for life. And it was extremely, a, it was a hard life that they had to live because Pakistan at that time was a new country and it was developing itself. And there was a lot of Muslims because of racism, because of discrimination and all forms that that took had to migrate. They left. Unfortunately, also many uh, Muslims over the years that migrated from India to Pakistan, unfortunately, they also felt some forms of racism because my father, uh, his parents died when he was at a very young age and he had to uh, migrate to Pakistan from India. And he talks about the racism that he endured uh, during uh, the few years that he was in Pakistan before he immigrated uh, almost 50 years ago to Canada. So he endured a lot because, yes, there is, as I mentioned before, racism within the same culture. It can be there's it can be some racism within the same culture. And if you're from the Indo-Pak region, you are very well aware of some of those uh, racist um, uh, tribal uh, attitudes that can come into play. And so uh, my mother describes what my grandfather and his family had to do for many years. They would have to sleep at you would have different children sleeping at different relatives homes. And they would uh, eat at different relatives homes. So, OK, we're going to go eat at our uncle's house dinner. OK, you two go eat at your aunt's house today. And they would try to manage their life and survive. OK, and um, he, she mentions how uh, he would say that his aunt used to take such good care of him and show him that love. Right. That goes shows, shows you uh, what the capacity, what love can do in terms of building 
someone when hate and racism can destroy people's lives. And what occurred to me is that when she went through this story, I felt sadness. I felt a sense of sadness. And I realized that the scars of racism can be inherited through generations. Because I had a family member that was killed because of racism. When my father immigrated as a teenager to uh, Canada, he tells me all the stories that he had to endure, you know, because of racism. And how he had to play the game and survive and, uh, you know, try to build a family, uh, being made fun of with your accent, uh, being looked over for jobs. So he had to deal with, uh, you know, the racist attitudes that uh, many people had. And that had an effect on him to the extent I remember him advising me. He told me like, like as if this was a known fact that gravity exists or, uh, you know, the, the, the seasons change and that, uh, you know, after darkness comes light and then there's the sun and then it comes darkness. Like I, I, as if it, it was an immutable fact, he said that, listen, you're in a place where there is a lot of prejudice. But one thing that my father mentioned to me, he said, listen, uh, there is prejudice. There's, they're, you know, they're, they're not going to treat you. They're not, they're not going to take you as they take their own. So you have to be exceptional. That's, that's what he advised me to do. He said, you have to be exceptional because unless you're exceptional, then you're not going to be accepted. You're not going to be able to advance within society. Okay. So, uh, these are the conversations, and I endured racism. I've endured racial epithets. Uh, I've, uh, due to the color of my skin, I've been singled out. Uh, you know, had to get into fights. Uh, I've had to uh, endure probably some of the most worst racism in, uh, you know, professional colleges. And I would say that's where you see the uh, nefarious effect of structural racism which many people who obviously aren't exposed to that feel that, you know, doesn't exist. So uh, this is our experience. Like we're talking about generational scarring. We're talking about generation hurt and pain. And when I think about the story of my great-grandfather and what my grandfather had to endure and the sadness that my mother endured, that makes me feel sad. So that that act, that heinous act of racism has affected our family from generations. And that's why I can be sympathetic to any other people that have experienced racism. I can be extremely sympathetic uh, and my heart goes out and I can connect with those whose the effects of racism uh, was the generational scarring due to slavery. To think about how your great, great grandparents were treated and killed and brutalized and enslaved and treated like animals. I can I can I can appreciate that that pain is not restricted to a single generation. I can appreciate that that pain gets carried over and that has a, a lasting effect. I can appreciate that in the world today that whether and, – and that's why I believe truly that tribalism is a much, much better term 
because again, uh, racism truly is because uh, 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 for the fact, like if you look at tribalism, usually the people of your tribe look the same. But that doesn't mean that you can have helpers or you could have conspirators from people who don't look like you who join your tribe. It's, 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 you know, it's like those people who are uh, chosen, selected by, uh, you know, the uh, powers that be, uh, the upholders of status quo, where they select people who look different. Uh, and in uh, in an attempt for tokenism to show that hey listen we are not racist because we have a, a you know a a person of color uh, you know we're not racist because we have uh, a person uh, who is a different religion you know I I, I remember uh, you know enduring structural racism where I was questioned I was like okay why do you have to practice your religion when there are people from your religion that we have uh, had experience with and they don't practice it so why do you have to practice it and i was questioned out and and they would be very very proud to tout these people who look different and are muslim they'd be very very proud to, to tout that as long as hey listen you think like us and you take us as an ultimate authority you can have the freedom of independent thought so uh Many people in this earth have endured different varying forms of this disease, but this is not the problem in and of itself. And that's what I think we need to appreciate. And that's what's going to bring this ummah together. Because if we continue to fall into the trend of identity politics, that is not going to bring this ummah together. It will not bring this ummah together. If you know, you have different minority groups, or if they're pitted against each other. Uh, you know, recently, uh, you know, not too long ago, there was this, um, uh, this was this adversarial uh, relationship that was happening between uh, Chinese, uh, you know, uh, uh, students of Chinese descent. And uh, I think there was a lawsuit that was uh, started by uh, some people who were saying that it's not fair that you have, um, you know, African Americans, you have blacks given precedence, but we have higher marks. And so you pit these two people together. These people are pitted against each other. The powers that be, they want identity politics to proliferate. Why do you think these corporations, why do you think that these corporations promote things like Black Lives Matter? Why do you think they have diversity campaigns? Because they don't want to go to the core of addressing injustice. They don't want to address the core of injustice. They want us to, uh, to, to, to fight at each other so they can control the mechanisms of power. They don't want us to have true justice because how can you be a person? You know, how can Nike, for example, isn't it hypocritical that Nike now is talking about Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, racial uh, injustice when their factories exploit so many poor brown and black people on the earth. Isn't that hypocritical for them to do that? And then we're going to look to them for leadership. We're going to say, okay, yeah, wow, look at how woke Nike is. And it makes me feel good about my consumerism. Right? So uh, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. And let's understand uh, and appreciate the hurt that all these different 
people have endured. And that's why not only should we listen, but it's not listening is not good enough. Talking is not good enough. We need to forge a path that will bring somebody from darkness to light. And the only proper direction is if you go closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the only path that gives a solution for humanity. That is the only path that does that. Okay, so uh, I wanted to sh share this personal experience with all of you because oftentimes we have in our minds, and the reason um, uh, I, I think most of us fall into this is because again, remember, wokeness, justice sometimes, or these activist things are marketed, they're packaged, they're branded. And so right now it's like, okay, look at, it's all about racism um, in from one particular angle, okay? No, there is racism across the board. If you look at how the amount of death and destruction that is caused by Islamophobia in the past two decades, we're talking about genocidal numbers. We're talking about genocide. People's being wiped off the face of the earth, people being displaced, like entire nations being displaced off the face of the earth. And so now we're gonna give the most attention, okay, to this. That that's that's when you stop thinking and you understand uh, that uh, people are just led uh, by their noses to different directions, and they don't just stop to think and listen. Hey, let me take a step back and look at what is the key core issues: racism, tribalism, uh, all of these different things come from the same disease of the heart. It comes from the same disease of the heart. It comes from that pride. It comes from that arrogance. It comes for the taking your nafs above that of what created you. That is the source of that. That is the source of that. So, uh, inshallah, if you have questions, inshallah, as I said, this will make this a special one. Um, I have our guests ready with us now. And so maybe during the course of uh, this podcast, we'll save some time at the end. Or during the course of this podcast, uh, I'll... Um, Try to incorporate some of your queries in Ta'ala. But now I would like to introduce uh, a guest, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, a very great brother. Uh, we had we have a lot of uh, things in common that we did not know until we met each other. So Subhanallah, again, what brought us together? You know, what brought us together? It was the Deen of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. That's what's going to bring people together. And I'm going to keep saying this over and over again. I'm tired of people saying. I just just coming up with catchphrases that have no meaning, you know. Uh, the what's going to bring the world together is if we turn to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. That's my clear message to the world. That's my clear message to the world, and I and I've experienced that myself. And it doesn't matter where you're from, uh, your background, your class. I haven't seen anybody brought be brought together in the world like Islam has brought people together in the world. So this brother and I, we've been united because of our cause for Islam, uh, because of our uh, unity upon believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, he is a very special and unique brother in the sense that he is fulfilling a need in our community that not many people are standing up and taking the mantle to fulfill. And that is to have a strong, intellectual, uh, powerful voice in the media. And so this brother, he specializes in media, in journalism. He has launched his own media website, Five Pillars. And that's what I also love about this brother, because even though he worked within the system, he had the strength 
to start his own platform. And that's what we need. We need people who have the strength to start their own platform, not just be followers or, again, being token representatives of their communities, you know, because there's only so much that you can do. So this brother is trying to change the game. He's a true disruptor of the media narrative, although, like I said, he's worked with BBC, Sky News, CNN, France 24, Russia Today, uh, Huffington Post, like all of these different uh, media outlets. He's familiar with this. Uh, he, he is not um, strange uh, to them as well. He has uh, engaged with them. And uh, uh, I'd like to re uh, bring on to the program my dear friend, brother Dili Hussein. How are you, brother? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. My dear brother, Dr. Saeed. It's mad because even though, uh, as you rightly stated, we are brothers, we are companions, I still have that older brotherly respect. I still, I must call you by Dr. Saeed. When I know I can just call you Saeed, but I have to call you Dr. Saeed. Yes, Allah khair. Thank you for uh, having me on, bro. Allah for all the brothers and sisters who are tuning in and giving up their time. May Allah bless you all and accept it from you all. And I'm super excited to be on, bro. Uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, it's been uh, a little bit of difficulty, I know, coordinating everything. But finally, we were able to make this happen. Alhamdulillah. And uh, like, I think, man, we're, we have so much to talk about. And what I love about having you on is that there are a few Muslims that I find that can critically talk about different issues. Like, I think it's just superficial. Like, you'll have, like, the lecture and halaqa, like, uh, forum, where it's just like, okay, I'm just going to give you uh, what Islam says and, you know, just uh, – because and, and that's very relevant. And that's very, very important, okay? But you're not necessarily going to sometimes break through sometimes barriers people have in their minds uh, or get them to critically think. Because you got to take now what Islam says and the principles that Islam have and say, okay, now how are we going to take these tools and use that to um, challenge the structural narratives that were given in society, the structural programs that were forced to partake in society. So mm -hmm. you have that, you have that type of thing where it's just like lecture. Then you have the, the, the question and you know the interview style. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you have so you don't have like a uh, a forum or a podcast where it's like, you know, let's let's talk about okay, we have fundamentally similar principles. So we're not gonna say that, hey, hey man, you're you're like a deviant, you're a kafir, you're ahlul bid'ah. No, no, no. We want to talk about how do we come up with solutions and we can have robust, passionate arguments about that. Because, you know, mashallah, you don't have a weak will, you're not a fragile person. Um, you don't get uh triggered. Do you get triggered? Dilly, do you get triggered e easily? No, not easily, but there's certain yeah. times that trigger me if you yeah. that. Yeah, but, 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 but uh, triggered in the sense that you have an emotional meltdown. No, no, no. That's what I mean by being triggered is that, like, okay, I feel that as Muslims, if we disagree with something, we can't just say, hey, that's Islamophobic or, hey, that's racist. But, okay, you're saying that. Let's discuss this. Let's let's break it down. OK, let's uh, you know, uh, let's see uh, how strong that viewpoint is. You, you understand what I'm saying? So that's what I like, about, like, you know, having conversations with brothers like you. And I think that was demonstrated uh, in that Dawa talk episode uh, that we had uh, with, uh, with with the other Shiyu, because for some people, they're like, 
they may find that, hey, what is that? Like, why are you guys like arguing? It's like, man, that's good. We want uh, it to get heated. We want we want uh, like uh, viewpoints to be challenged. So then they show that they're strong. Like there is some veracity to it. There's some validity to that. You know what I mean? And we need to have those, these types of robust conversations with people who have fundamental similar principles so we can come up with actually pragmatic solutions. And so they're just not like fluff talk. And so that's why I really I, I like that about having a brother like you on the on, on, on the program that we can talk because I like even people who think that they're critical thinkers, sometimes they'll just go off the rails. They'll just reject everything that's like the narrative. But then it's like, man, you're not saying anything in terms of what is a practical way of of of, uh, of moving forward, right? So, for example, you have certain brothers, um, and I've seen I've seen the, the 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 videos and the forewords and all of that stuff talking about how every single thing is a conspiracy conspiracy theory, right? But then that leaves you in a state of paralysis. I, I remember talking to brothers saying that, hey, listen. Uh, back in the days, we need to uh, boycott and divest and all of these different things with against this whole Zionism movement. And then he's like, "Bro, you can't do it, man. They control everything. You can't, you can't boycott. There's, there's no way out." As if that you're giving this this level of rububia that should only be reserved for Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. You know what I mean? So. I, we got to have these critical brothers that can talk about like political issues, that can talk about strategic thinking, that can talk about media. So I'm very, very happy to to have somebody like you on the program that I can have these types of conversations. And it's not like, you know, you're going to get emotionally uh, triggered or anything like that. No, no, not at all. I mean, look, at the end of the day, as as Muslims, who Allah has told us in the Quran that we are the possessors of truth, the divine truth, and and we make that exclusive claim. There needs to be a level of uh, thick skin uh, when we engage, um, and and so that. But but at the same time, it's also important for our viewers and listeners to obviously understand that if there's certain things that don't trigger you, it's also a problem. Right? Yes. And the yeah. dean of Islam is being defamed and deformed and attacked, and that doesn't trigger you. Mm. But something which is trending triggers you. Allah, you need to ask yourself this question. Yes. Because. Yes. Said, what is the greatest form of oppression? In our deen, what is the greatest form of oppression? It's disbelief, isn't it? Yes. Disbelief in Allah. And the greatest and the greatest oppression you can commit is to transgress the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Yes. Or to our Lord. So yeah. we have a particular mindset that look, there will be so many things. Right now, it's the George Floyd murder, the Black Lives Matter protest, you know. Mm. Millions of people protesting in the US and beyond in the UK. There's tens and thousands in London. I'm sure in Canada as well. Mm. That's going to die out. Trust me, yes. if it's a week or two weeks, it's going to die out. And all, mm. all those people who jump on that bandwagon will just go back to their normal lifestyle. Mm. Until, yes. the next, until the next hype comes. But as believers and as Muslims, we need to be providing that guidance and that leadership and to try our best to reframe and reshift the discussion, which is something in accordance to our deen and our tradition and our paradigm. Mm. And I think this is one of the many, many difficulties that many Muslims have, irrelevant of race, ethnicity, background, even our du'at, our activists, our academics, is because it's so easy to conform to something which is trendy. Even the mm. issue of language, it is something which is so easy to just adopt because it sounds right. It makes sense on face value. Mm. There's no critical level two of actually 
scratching beneath the surface and trying to understand what is being called for here, mm. right? There is, there is injustice and oppression taking place. Now, we accept this, we identify this. Allah tells us in the Quran to be persistent for the case of justice, even if it's against yourselves and so mm. forth. You know this, right? What is the solution? Then? Yes. What is the solution? What is, for, and, and as Muslims, we cannot give any other solution except one which is grounded in our sacred text, right? Yes. With the guidance of the righteous scholars. And so one of the things that's taking place um, in light of the murder of George Floyd, the institutional systemic racism against African-Americans, which has been going on for centuries, as well as various anti-blackness within non-black Muslim communities and so forth. These, there's so many things happening here. And mm. I think so many different discussions taking place on social media, Dr. Said. So many. Mm. On one spectrum, on one spectrum, you have, please, brother, sister, don't bring Islam into it. Don't bring Palestine into it. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't say Muslim lives matter or lives matter. Please just either support us unequivocally or be quiet. Yeah. Do not bring Islam, yeah. or Bilal into it. That's one spectrum. Yeah. The other spectrum is some of our well-meaning Muslim brothers and sisters trying to give Islamic rulings on protesting to a predominantly non-Muslim population. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're not covering your aura. Yeah. You're protesting and exactly. not covering... <laughs> no, because in, in, in the US, 20% of African-Americans are Muslims. So there's 42 million roughly that are African-Americans, of which 20% are Muslim. Why should they feel the need to follow the Islamic rulings on protests and stuff? Get them... Get them to understand the deen of Islam first and foremost, for them to first understand, you understand? Yeah. So there's a whole spectrum of things. There's a spectrum of, okay, we don't even want you to stand side by side with us. First address the anti-black racism within your communities. And, th and there's so many different discussions. Yeah, yeah. We just need to redirect it back to what is our priority based on our understanding reality and what we can observe. Yeah. And looking at historical and contemporary examples where pitting one community against another at an opportune moment, mm. at an opportune moment, which Allah could give many blessings if people fix up their acts, mm. that we are too busy again pitting one against one another. But anyway, I hope we can actually touch upon many of these things in the podcast. I, I can rest assure you, brothers and sisters and listeners and viewers, and me and Dr. Saeed yeah. start chatting, political correctness goes out of the window. So... Yeah. So trigger warning. Should we should we flash a trigger warning? Yeah, absolutely. Trigger warning. <laughs> trigger warning right now. Yeah. So uh, you you've said a lot of things that uh, Subhanallah we need to talk about because you're you're absolutely correct. It's like do not talk about this subject because you don't know anything about this subject. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Who knows more about any solution than Allah? You understand what I'm saying? Like. Unless you're telling me that this is like, because again, you're just trying to replace one form of racism with another. And you're just, that's why, to tell you the truth, like if you look at writings, like if you look at some of the writings of um, uh, academics within the United, like non-Muslim academics, they will tell you that the elite actually will support this type of like movements like these type of identity politics and you can tell by the rhetoric of how superficial it is so you'll have for example oh black lives matter and then you'll have a bunch of white people say no 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 no, all uh, all lives matter actually all lives matter right and so then they'll say no no that's not what we mean that all our li lives matter right and you know that's not what they mean but at the same time it is a little bit superficial just to say that black lives matter because 
I felt hurt to tell you the truth because I've I've tried to always uh, champion uh, the plight of or speak at least about the the the, the plight of like African Americans and so forth. And brother, I felt hurt when I saw many African Americans in the military go and kill my brothers and sisters across the world. So so do you understand what I'm saying? So we can't just be superficial here. We can't just be superficial here. You're saying black lives matter? No, and I don't agree with saying all lives matter because like if 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 somebody from Black Lives Matter just added the word two at the end, you know how they did the Me Too movement? If yeah. they just said uh, Black Lives Matter too, then they wouldn't have an argument. Like those, you know, the the, the white people wouldn't have an argument to say, no, 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 shouldn't all lives matter? Because, but that's how superficial it is. But that's how superficial it is. But I felt pain, man, that you're going out and bombing dark people. Like what happened to people like Muhammad Ali, who was going to jail and say, I'm not going to Vietnam and kill brown people because none of them called me the N-word. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? What happened to the true, like, deeper uh, human rights uh, championing? Mm. Look, um, I'm, 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 I can't believe that you just cited that specific example. And I'll tell you why. You know, there's a brother called uh, Mozambique in the UK. Uh, the brother who spent three years in Guantanamo and then a year in Bagram, you know, yeah. faced horrific levels of torture and, and 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 things which you and I or people can only imagine and then stop imagining because that's how painful and, and dreadful it is. Yeah. Yesterday, he posted a status, exactly what you just said there, exactly, nearly verbatim, where he spoke about where he saw black US soldiers torturing and raping Muslim prisoners. And he spoke about one specific prisoner called, a brother called Dilawar. May Allah have mercy on him, he died, yeah, in Bagram. Mm-hmm. And brother Mwazam was merely making the point that look, brothers and sisters, whether it's turncoats, whether it's native informants, whether it's sellouts, whether it's your Uncle Tom's, whether, no matter every cause and every people have these people within our communities. We need to call these people out because they're very dangerous and they're actually more harmful at times than the system itself. Mm. So on his thread, two academics, who I'm not going to name, two Muslim academics came on board and they're quite well known in the kind of CVE, anti-racism areas of academia. Mm. And they had the audacity to mm. question our brother Muslims' lived experience of the war on terror. This is a man who was tortured. This was a man who saw the Quran defiled. This was a man who, wallahi, these are things which we would never could imagine. Things that were done mm. to him, which he witnessed. But because it didn't fit into the popular framework mm. of identity politics and anti-racism as it's so commonly understood these days, that, mm. more, that, that this, these two individuals who are academics felt the need to even question to even question our brother Muslim's experience. And when I spoke to brother Muslim, he said this to me. Mm-hmm. He said, people can theorize my experience. I lived the experience. Yes. He goes, he goes I went to prison for Islam. Alhamdulillah. Yes. He goes, but, yeah. but there's academics that go on to talk about my, my experience. Yeah, he goes, mm-hmm. I live and I'm telling you why. Yeah. 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 They, they're talking about the experience level. I, I read this in a book. That uh, according, you know, the, this is what you're, uh, theoretically what you should feel in torture. It's like, man, he went through it. He went through that, uh, through that. And so many but, others. So many others. Yeah. yeah. I, but, I, but you know what? Like, that's why I, I, I want to go back 
to like and I, and I want people to reflect because I think too many people get their advice from people who read blogs and not books. You know, uh, look at uh, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, for example. Here were people who endured far more racism than pe black people are enduring today. Like not many things have changed, but they didn't have a lot of the policies in place to protect them that are that we have today. They didn't have social media or videos to show, record, and have people outraged publicly about what they had to endure. But from day one, you could tell that these were very principled individuals because they were always talking about a pan-Africanism. They were always talking about the global plight of, uh, of poor people in the world, of impoverished people in the world. Uh, they were talking about uh, not just what was happening to them, the brutality they were facing in the United States. You know, uh, Muhammad Ali could have had a very easy job to go and just, they said, just you just have to go there and you can just be an entertainer when you to Vietnam. You don't have to fight. You're not going to be in danger's way. But he didn't even want to pander to that. Mm. Malcolm X, he was talking about the plight of the Muslim world. He was talking about Pan-Africanism. He was, you know, th their ideas were different. Uh, they weren't just trying to uh, give trending uh, statements or trust trying to get uh, uh, material benefit from this, you know, for their self, you know, to, to, to embolden themselves or to inflate their ego. Muhammad Ali didn't have a crazy shoe deal. You understand what I'm saying? He wasn't a brand ambassador. He wasn't a, like a crazy brand ambassador that uh, brands were fawning over to, to spot. They were actually running away from him. You know, and, and and the fact that, you know, we sometimes forget that Muhammad Ali was a pariah until actually the Olympics where they saw him raise the torch and they saw him in that frail condition. And then people started to retroactively say, hey, wait a minute, Muhammad Ali, actually, he was such a great principled person. And then you had movies come out with Will Smith and all of these other things. You have Malcolm X. Again, same thing. Malcolm X was like a terrorist, according to the FBI. You know, because he was talking about worldwide causes. He was talking about principled causes. There are uh, recordings released on YouTube that show when he was excommunicated from the nation of Islam that the FBI, he recorded this. It's on YouTube, if any of you are interested. He recorded the FBI agents uh, telling him that they would pay him if he becomes an informant because they understand that he has now been uh, excommunicated from the nation of Islam. OK, and he's basically said, like, I understand you would be an idiot for you to think that. Right. Uh, you know, he basically threw it at their faces. So you had people and then now retroactively people are wearing Malcolm, like they're talking about Malcolm X and all of these different things. And there's Black Lives Matter and they're posting hashtag trend. I'm like, read what these people actually did, what they actually stood up for and how they when they t talked about racism, when they talked about justice, it wasn't from a very narrow a uh, branded, uh, corporatized viewpoint. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? And yeah. that's what's distracting the Muslim community from doing anything significant, from doing anything that's nourishing to the soul. What's you know your, what I mean? What's your, Dr. Say, what's your thoughts on a claim which is quite, I've, I've heard it a few times, that non-black Muslims try appropriating the legacy of Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. What's your, have you heard this one before? Yes. Well, well, I would say then, uh, don't speak for Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. That I means would, you're, you know what I mean? I'm, for those people who would say that, 
I don't think they've read Malcolm X's autobiography. I don't think they have read the diary of Malcolm X. I don't think they have read uh, statements or heard statements and the rhetoric of somebody like Muhammad Ali, who was uh, um, a person who was ummah oriented. Absolutely. He was talking about the Palestinian issue. And we're not going to say, oh, Muhammad Ali, are you co-opting the struggle of the Palestinian plight? You know, are we going to say to 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 that to to Malcolm X? I have excerpts. I'll show you. I have the diary here of of uh, of Malcolm X. Those people haven't read this diary, brother. Mm. The diary of of of, of uh, Al Hajj Malik Al Shabazz. They have not read his diary. They mm. haven't heard what he said about uh, the you know sharing the message of Islam of all of us coming together. They didn't obviously uh, understand uh, the fact that he went to. Ahl-Sunnah. So no. he rejected he rejected well, black nationalism. He went well, towards Ahl-Sunnah. Well, so, so, so the point, so, so I guess the slam dunk position is that what did they both, may Allah have mercy on them both, die upon? They died upon normative Sunni Islam. Yeah. And that was that was what shaped their worldview. Yes. Fundamentally, right? So yes. I mean, Dr. Say, let me just let me just get a few kind of, if I may, if I if I can just get a few disclaimers out of the way, because it's important. Because this, this topic that we're going to delve into today is so sensitive. What I don't want our brothers and sisters who are listening now, watching now, we're going to do it later, is to think that any in any shape or form that we are belittling or dismissing or appropriating anything. It needs to be well known, it needs to be well known that the oppression which African Americans have experienced under the US regime for over 400 years is something that is so horrific Yes. That I would go as far as to say, historically speaking, that there's no other groups of people that have experienced that level of systemic, global, coordinated enslavement and yes. then labor exploitation upon and, 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 and sustained and sustained racism. Still ongoing to the yes. extent where the US built an entire empire of the blood, sweat, tears, and lives of black African slaves, many of whom were Muslim. Many of whom were Muslim slaves, number one. Number two, brothers and sisters from whatever background you're from, even if there's non-Muslims that are going to join and listen to this podcast, no one has the right, because you would be denying reality, to say that African Americans, specifically in the US and beyond, face a level of racial prejudice and, and oppression which is very visible, which is institutional, and which is deep-rooted in not decades, but centuries of very racist policies of European colonialism, whether it be the science of eugenics, all of these things are legit. We, yes. I don't know, me or Dr. Saeed are in any shape or form trying to like belittle because you would be denying reality and we could even fall into sin to be denying injustice. Yes. I guess the crux of today's discussion has to be this. As Muslims, as Muslims, how do we navigate through this through this situation and the various other situations, right? Yes, yes. And so therefore we need to understand very core concepts because it's not as if that racism is something so new, right? Because mm. I've commonly asked certain academics and certain woke activists, yeah. what predates white supremacy? They're stuck. I'm like, what, yes. predates white supremacy? what predates European colonialism? Muslim yes. academics, what predates European colonialism? They're stuck because that's kind of where the chronology of kind of 
postmodernist kind of um, you know structural thinking and you know all these kind of different ideologies and and, and tools, sociological tools are born. But we know that Shaitan Iblis, he refused to make sujood to Adam alayhi salam, and it's very widely known that oh, it's kibber. It was kibber. Yes, it was kibber. But what was that kibber grounded on? It was grounded on a biological difference that he had with Adam alayhi salam. Mm. He thought he was made out of uh, smokeless fire, mm. and Adam alayhi salam was made from turab. So he mm. felt superior to Adam mm. alayhi salam. This guy was the first racist. He was the first racist. And then we know from the many hadith of the Prophet وسلم, where we spoke about Asabiyyah. Now Asabiyyah has many modern manifestations from racism to tribalism to nationalism, right? Yes. Racism is one strand and a very apparent manifestation of Asabiyyah. Asabiyyah mm -hmm. is something the Prophet called rotten in another hadith where the, the authenticity is disputed amongst the ulama. He, he described it to something so foul that I'm not even going to utter these words. You heard this hadith? Mm. Yeah? Yes. So, so Prophet has told us this. He's, he's made it very clear in his final sermon. And again, it's got to such a point where some Muslims are being told not to talk about these things. Mm. Don't talk about the Prophet's last sermon. Don't talk about Bilal radiallahu Don't mm. talk about that non, uh, an Arab is not better than a non Arab and a white is better. Don't mm. talk about these things. How mm. can a Muslim not talk about these things? What mm. do you want us to talk from? What framework do you want us to talk from? Yeah. 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 We know, we know, brothers and sisters, we know that Prophet has spoken about Asabiyyah very, very, yeah. very, very explicitly. He spoke yeah. about the Asabiyyah that existed internally amongst Quraysh. He spoke about the Asabiyyah that existed amongst some Sahaba towards others due to their lineage, due to their race. He's addressed this. We also know, you know, people, it's, it's, so, it's so trendy now, right, Dr. Say they want mm -hmm. to talk about structural racism. And struct okay, mm -hmm. Allah tells us about Al Mala. In the Quran, mm -hmm. Allah tells us about the rich and powerful elite who were commonly those who rejected the message of the prophets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Al-Mala were the ones who rejected Nuh alayhi salam, who rejected Musa mm -hmm. alayhi salam. Fir'aun was the system. Mm -hmm. He was a system of oppression. Mm -hmm. And what did, did Fir'aun do? What did the Mufassirin say about Fir'aun? Mm -hmm. He divided society into groups and kept them divided and disunited. Mm -hmm easier to control. We don't need postmodernist structural theory to be telling us that. Allah has told us that. Mm. Allah has told us how it was the Jewish clergy, right? And the Jewish elite at the of Bani Israel at the time of Isa Islam who rejected him, who conspired mm. with the Romans. Who were the Romans? They were the structures of power, right? Mm. Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Quraysh, they were the system of power of Arabia, mm. right? Yeah. We know this and we also know it's a very Aqidah one-on-one discussion here. Yeah. Anything that emanates from disbelief is going to be oppressive. So yes. we don't need modern notions of... Do, do, you, do you think a lot of people get fooled because of like some of this fancy terminology uh, in a sense thinking that these people have uh, for the first time in history diagnosed these problems and these issues and identified them? Do you think that sometimes these some of these fancy terms and... Uh, uh, you know, some of this political or sorry, this academic discourse uh, fools Muslims to think that, hey, this is the first time that, oh, this is being identified when if you knew your history and if you knew your uh, dean, that uh, we already have uh, this called out. We have these problems identified. We've, we have the way that it, that it become pervasive within society identified. And also we have solutions identified. So do you think sometimes we neglect that for something that seems to be more, you know, 
uh, seemingly more shiny and advanced and, and, and things like that? I think it's various issues, but I think number one, first and yeah. foremost, there's a genuine lack of knowledge with pertaining to the very basics of Adi. Those who, have very, those who have a very cursory understanding of the Quran and the Sirah would know that Allah, Allah his message has spoken about these things. He's spoken about oppression. He's spoken about Asabiyah. He's spoken about racism. He's spoken about unity. He's spoken about systems of oppression. If you just had a very basic understanding of these things, you'd know this, right? Mm. Number two, I think there's also, it's a part of our inferiority complex. The fact yes. that Mus the Muslim Ummah collectively are in a position where they are not the flag bearers of humanity. And they haven't been for the last 100 to 150 years. And when that happens, we tend to imitate the more powerful nations, right? Mm -hmm. And we tend to adopt the language of those who we see as leaders in, in, in respective fields. So this is normal. Humans imitate other human beings, especially when there's an issue of inferiority complex and there's not an a confidence in your own tradition, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, it's a mix of those two. But I also think that there is a genuine, well-meaning, intended uh, constitu constituency of Muslim academics and activists who want to do good, who want to help the oppressed, who want to stand for justice and, 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 and are proudly Muslim. But for whatever reason, they are delving into certain areas and certain secular philosophies and sociological tools without perhaps understanding that you will find at some point or another a contradiction with the Islamic tradition. Let me just give you one example. When when you speak to many of these individuals who are within the area of postmodernist thinking or, or you know critical race theory or whatever it may be, when they talk about whiteness or white privilege, or you know, when they talk about you know certain kind of identity politics, they need to understand that Isla the Islamic worldview, the Islamic worldview, and I think there's a, gen a general consensus amongst the former dais of Ahl Sunnah and, 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 and the three schools of theology, that the worldview of Islam is not based on class, gender, uh, race, and now sexual, sexual persuasion. These are things that are alien to us. Mm. <laughs> Allah has already set out for us in our tradition and, and, and our scripture what the groups are. Men and women, believers and disbelievers. And then amongst disbelievers, you have certain categories. Amongst believers, you have certain categories. You have the rich and the poor. Why are we seeking new, <laughs> why are we seeking new metrics to define our worldview? Now, the socialist worldview is kind of grounded upon material determinism. I don't want to go into too much philosophical linguistics, but the yeah. point I make is that we don't define man, life, and universe according to these, these kind of deliverables. We, you know, mm. the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, um, mm. the subjugation of women in, in, in male-dominated societies, of which feminism was born as a strand of this thinking. Yeah? Mm. Or that, you know, LGBTQ is a protected identity, so all of a sudden of late, Muslims are also a discriminated community, so therefore all discriminated communities need to come together and work together against the system. It all sounds nice, trendy, savvy, funky, yeah, you know, it all sounds mm. really cool. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. But guess what's going to happen? What's going to happen when a Muslim who has fully subscribed to all of this, mm. how are you going to respond to when someone posits the question to you, but Allah says that you need certain number of female witnesses against certain number of male witnesses. Mm. Or Allah tells us that the man is generally a protector over his women folk. Mm. Or that a man in Islam can marry a Jewish Christian woman and can have four wives if he's able to be just to them, but a woman yeah. can't. How do you yeah. now respond to these very normative Islamic beliefs according to yeah. your according to this framework? Yeah. You understand? Well then it's like it's like, well, 
what do you think I should believe? <laughs> you know, that's that's literally what happens. Is like, okay, what 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 do you think I should do then? You know, and then you no longer. Ha- I think the starting point is whether or not uh, your motivation. I think it comes down to uh, uh, also your 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 deep seated motivation. If you have a deep seated motivation uh, to please Allah over pleasing the creation. There are going to be many instances where you're going to be at odds with popular discourse. You know what I mean? You have to accept, like, if we look at the tradition of the NBA, as you alluded to earlier, that uh, traditionally the NBA, they didn't come with a message and they're like, oh, ahlan, come, welcome, and like put out the red carpet for them. They were opposed every single time. They were they were vehemently opposed. If you look at Rasul Sallallahu it looked like the reason why, when you when you look at what Abu Jahl mentioned, the reason why he rejected Rasul Sallallahu because he said that he looked at it from a tribalistic power structure perspective. He said, uh, we have to reject him because he's Benu Hashim. They're coming yeah. to like take over. They have all the rights. Their tribe has all the rights, like of like uh, of, of Nadwa, Saqaya, of like feeding yeah. the pilgrims, of doing all these different things. And now they want the prophethood too. So yeah, when 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 you're coming from that, you have to be prepared. You have to expect that you are going to be at odds with institutional powers, with status quo. And if you're not, that is probably an indication that you're doing something incorrect, that there is some type of corruption in your motivation. You know what I mean? So I think individuals need to have that idea because, uh, as you mentioned, I think we are too, uh, too comfortable with authoritarian structures telling us what to do and how to think. You know, I think we're too comfortable with that because even though we say, hey, listen, uh, we are living in democracies and it's power of the people. Can you tell me, brother, can you tell me if that is the case, if we are truly living in societies where we have critical and independent thinking, how can it be that politicians were telling us what was morally virtuous to do was staying inside? They're saying stay indoors, stay indoors, stay indoors. This is the most morally conscious thing that you can do. And then all of a sudden, within an instant, it changed. The most morally virtuous and conscious thing that you can do is go and protest. Like our own prime minister was not abiding by social distancing. You had uh, mayors and governors in the United States and politicians, Joe Biden, all of these big uh, name hitters now, uh, you know, encouraging people to protest. What happened before the morally virtuous thing, conscious thing to do was to be social distancing. The Muslims were trying to abide by that. Okay, there's no aid. Uh, we can't. We shouldn't go into the masajid. Okay, well, let's listen. Let's be good, morally conscious citizens. Overnight now, hey, 15,000. And these are small Canadian cities, 15,000, 20,000, 100,000 people coming together. Uh, for protesting in the United States. Like, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of people protesting. Come, There's no social distancing. So now all of a sudden, if the moral obligation, okay, for society is, yes, no, it's we need to protest. We need to come together, but do it peacefully. Okay. But what happened in an instant? Like, do people not think about this? Like, oh, you know, how they're being uh, socially trained and engineered uh, to be controlled in that way? Well, I'd even go as far as to say this. Let's put Biden and Trudeau and these kind of guys aside. Let's let's talk about even some faith leaders within our communities, right? 
who basically went, some went as far as to say that it's wajib for us to stay indoors, right? Yes. Uh, for, you know, you know, to, to, to contain to contain the pandemic, to protect, to preserve life, etc. Yes. And then overnight, over a click of a finger, all of a sudden it was a moral obligation to participate in protests. Yeah. Yes. It, it, so forget about Biden, Biden and Trudeau. We've, you know, just see how these. No, no, but 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 what I'm saying is that generally in society, like look at um, uh, look at uh, the uh, the narrative that goes out to people. Okay, and, and how people feel that uh, no okay, we, need, we should be doing this. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's all controlled and sustained yeah. for minimal impact and maximum perception. That's yes. that's that's generally how things work in in democracy. I would even go as far and as that's to not to say. By the way, brother, I, I want to make uh, make it clear. I'm not saying that COVID, like you know, some people go to off the rails and say COVID doesn't exist, right? Uh, so I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the legitimacy. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even talking about the legitimacy of. Uh, the pan like the steps needed to be taken with the pandemic. Nor am I talking about the legitimacy of the protests. So Wait. I want to make the I want I want to take that off the table because sometimes people aren't able to understand uh, the concept. The concept I'm saying, the core concept I'm saying, is that within an instant, you have politicians that uh, give directive of what the moral obligation of society should be, and we can see right now within an instant how quickly it changes. And how did it change? Because not because of necessarily the veracity or a principled approach, but because of what is trending. So protests are trending. There's no politician who's going to say, oh, we shouldn't go out and protest and it's our obligation to stay home because they know it's trending and they're going to lose political points for that. That's the point. I want everybody to understand the point that I'm trying to make. I'm not saying that uh, like the, uh, the, the COVID policy is incorrect or that we shouldn't protest. What I'm see. saying is, don't you notice like this craziness that somehow you're giving completely opposite um, moral guidance, okay, that, uh, that that you should do as an individual citizen, okay, directives, and what is the reasoning behind it? It's not a principled approach, it's a political trending uh, points approach. And and, that, and and that's basically indicative of, 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 of liberal democracies in the way that goalposts constantly shift, and, yes. and they can shift overnight. Uh, but but you know it's sad, Dr. Saeed, that you know this podcast has been going on for about half hour, forty minutes so far, yeah, and already yeah. we have to stay out two disclaimers, yeah, and that's how that's how hypersensitive yeah. and how how hypersensitive this conversation that we can't even talk about the inconsistency of liberal governments and liberal positions without clarifying that hey guys, we're not saying don't protest, and nor are we saying that. COVID-19 was caused by 5G. Not, we have to put those disclaimers out there because yeah. and we shouldn't have to, it shouldn't have got to have got to this stage. Yeah. It shouldn't have got to the stage where two Muslims are, are discussing on a podcast about the inconsistency of liberal governments and liberal politicians, but we have to put out those disclaimers that, hey, we're not saying that protests are haram and the people who are protesting are, are doing something bad. Absolutely not. At the same time, COVID-19 is very real. Yes. And this is indicative of the discourse that's taken place in the last two weeks, especially uh, where, subhanAllah, you know, when we talk about anti-racism, anti-blackness, anti-blackness within the Muslim community, which is a very real thing and a yes. real, uh, you know, a lived experience amongst many of our black brothers and sisters, that, yes. you know, wallahi, you know, division and discord and pitting one, one group against the other is something that falls right into the lap of the greater powers that be.
Yeah. Mm. To the extent, to the extent, you know how saddened I was to read from some of our brothers and sisters that, yeah, it's okay to direct your grievances against the U.S. and Israel, but you don't want to talk. You don't want to talk about black anti-blackness within your own communities. And I thought to myself, okay, fine, but there's levels, aren't there? There's yeah. levels. There's priorities. There's yeah. all this. Okay, I don't care about the non-Muslim. I don't care per se about what the non-Muslims have to. I'm talking about Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a concept of wala and bara. Our yeah. loyalty is to Allah, the Messenger, and the community of believers. Yeah. So we should we should navigate around this. And I understand that if your non-black Muslim brothers and sisters have you have faced hostility from them, you have faced progression mm-hmm. and microaggression, open racism, and but still, you know, should they should 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 we all be collectively held responsible? Because yeah. all of a sudden this is the time right now to talk about how racist the Arabs and Desis are. If you know what, but I, I also, brother, I, I don't believe that narrative. You know what I mean? Because the 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 I would say it's more likely that the people who are standing up for racism, like in the United States, uh, in all over the world and so forth, those are the type of people who would stand up also for anti-blackness within our own communities. But if you look at the community as this like monolithic entity where you're putting all these older uncles and aunties in the same group as these activists, then yeah, you'll 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 come to that conclusion. Uh, there Dr. Sayyid, but wallahi, I've, I've heard it, I've even heard, I mean, I'm talking about the UK here, I don't know about the discourse in North America, I've yeah. even heard that, look, some of the shabab of, of, from the Arabs and, and South Asians, you guys yeah. are so vocal when it comes to the Uyghurs, you're so vocal when it comes to yeah. Palestine and Syria, you're so vocal, but when it comes to these issues, you're nowhere to be seen or you, you, you're too busy trying to redirect attention elsewhere. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I, I think to tell you the truth, like, uh, I think that is a vast uh, assumption. Okay, that that's just a uh, you're just painting all these people with the same brush without actually talking to these activists because there's very real and practical um, considerations to make. Okay, firstly, that there are so many issues within that are plaguing the Muslim world. I honestly believe, like, if a person is doing it for Islamic reasons, so that's different if it's cultural reasons, because I've spoken with Palestinian Muslims, for example, they don't care about any other issue except for Palestinian. It's okay. because because it's a Palestinian. It's, that, that's their motivation. But if you have... If you've got a if you've got a heart that is motivated to stand up for justice because they're serving the deen of Allah SWT, that's going to be morally consistent. Okay? Exactly. That's that's I I believe that's a morally consistent issue because now let's reverse it. Let's let's okay. You're talking about anti-black issues, but do you care about say for example uh, the 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 uh, the harams within gender issues that happen within Islam or like in terms of people who violate the uh, you know those principles? Uh, what about uh, you know economic despair? Like. Be morally consistent. That's an issue about morally consistency. Don't give me these identity politics games that, oh, look at your own community. Like the, the, the blacks are treated so badly in your own community. It's like, man, that goes even deeper than that, man. Like Urdu speaking and Punjabis don't get along. There's like instances oh. where Punjabis oh. will, like they'll they'll be at each other's throats. Bro, 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 bro. Don't give me that, like that, that, that thing. That's, yes, our parents' generation, did they... Um, were they involved, like even, I would say, in a lot of these human rights issues? I don't think so, because these are an immigrant 
a generation, like I'm talking about uh, uh, this demographic of Muslims, the immigrant generation of Muslims that came, they're just trying to survive, man. And they have a lot of tribalism in their mind that they're trying to like maybe shed. So they're, you can't uh, like equate this, uh, put them all on the same brush. You can't paint them on the same It's an illogical, it's a superficial, it's a non-academic way of looking at people or assessing uh, the situation. I mean, look, I, I think depending on, depending on, whichever Muslim you speak to, right? The, yeah. Irrespective of political or theological or sectarian yeah. persuasion, wherever it may be. Yeah. Whatever Muslim you speak to, first and foremost, we need to accept that, as you rightly said, we're not one monolithic community, yeah? yeah? So you will find some Muslims who are not practicing, well, not some, you'll find many who are not practicing. Yeah, exactly. Forget about, forget about moral inclusion, because they don't practice. Yeah. The deen of yeah. Islam is not something which guides and ascertains what's right and wrong and halal and haram. That's the first. Yeah. Let's get these guys, out, this demographic out of the way. Then you've got the community and the members and the Muslims who are practicing, right? Yes. And when I'm practicing, I mean, they don't commit open haram, major haram, and they kind of, they, they, they pray their salah and they refer to Islam in their life affairs as much as they can. Depending on who you speak to, black, Asian, Turk, Arab, white, they'll give you a list of priorities what they think is the most pressing issues for the ummah. Mm. Some will say, my dear brother, the ummah has, they're committing too much shirk and bid'ah, they need to mm. fix up and Allah won't give us victory until they fix up this. Yes. Some will say, my dear brothers, uh, you know, we haven't established the deen of Allah, we, deen, we haven't established the sharia, Allah is punishing us because of this. Mm. Others will say, we as a collective ummah are not worthy of Allah's victory, so therefore we need to fix up and, and self-reform via tarbiyah, then we become worthy. You've got so many differences, mm. so many methodological differences mm. that transcends race groups, right? Yes. So you're not going to find one person who's going to be like, oh, by the way, I think this issue um, of Palestine is far greater than what's happening to blacks in America, right? Yeah. And, and you'll find others who will say, Yes, I do prioritize these impressions over the others. It's human nature. It doesn't, doesn't yeah. mean that it's right. It's, yeah. But what you cannot do is, is two things. Paint the whole Muslim community who are yeah. non-black with yeah. one major stereotype. Number yes. two, and this is one of the most painful, hurtful, and worrying things. Yeah. Do not bring Islam into it, brother. Yeah. Brother, do not mention Bilal radiallahu anhu. Brother don't, brother, don't mention that Islam came to eradicate racism. Mm. So, 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 so what, from what framework do yeah. you want to from? Yeah. So I think, I think that... So you're telling me, essentially what you're saying is that, okay, you want, you want to silence me. You want to put a tape over my eyes. You want me to close my eyes. You want to you know, put earmuffs on. That's, uh, that's essentially what you're saying. Because that... Subscribe to your framework. I'm yeah. not going to do that. Yeah, I'm so what you're, what, what you're saying is that I need to think like you. Or I need to think like somebody else. Yeah. That that that's an insult. That's an insult to our own identity. Honestly, that that is that you're insulting. That is a person, you know, as uh, you know, Malcolm X, you know, said is that you're trying to, you know, when you cut off the roots of a tree, you know, his uh, lecture when he talks about cutting off your roots, it's like you're trying when you cut people off from their roots, you, you that's it. You own those people. You've destroyed that society. You know, you know? when we, had, you know, you know when we, you know when we had the. Um, the Canadian Dawah conference mm. back in January. Uh, majority of the attendees were who, Dr. Sayed? From an, what? Yeah. There was yes. Somali. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was mostly black, yes. It, 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 it was predominantly Somali Muslim attendees, yeah. right? 
And the unity and the brotherhood that I saw there was like, I mean, it was beautiful. But does that mean that every single Somali Muslim at one point or another has not faced some kind of microaggression from their brothers from another? They must have. Yeah. But the point is, there's a priority, man. There's priority. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, look. If, and, if and, any, and, then, and then I think you got to look at it, like, say, for example, uh, as uh, as somebody who's, a, uh, you know, who co comes from that medical background, when I'm diagnosing a problem in a patient, I am not going to just chase each symptom and just try to cure the symptoms. I'm going to go to the root of the disease. So the root of uh, racism and tribalism is jahiliya. This is what's been told to us from Rasul is ignorance, is ignorance. So if I treat ignorance, I'm treating that. I can't say, okay, you know what? Um, I'm going to justify this symptom by only treating this other symptom. That person's disease is still going to be in their hearts. Look at, uh, you, you tell me, this, this idea of superficially treating racism. How, how far has that advanced society? Uh, case in point, affirmative action. They have stated that affirmative action actually for the advancement of uh, in, in, in certain statistics has done more harm. And that's a very superficial way of saying it. It's okay. We need to show, as Dr. Cornell West has stated, uh, put black faces in high places. And he's talked about the fallacy of that. But okay, you know, we're just going to show, okay, we're, we're showing that we're not racist by having a, a black person. Has that truly uplifted the, their society? Has that truly uh, ended a, a, a oppression and the injustices that they're facing systemically? It didn't. There are so many studies now that show that it had a much more harmful effect than uh, a lot of the benefits that it was, uh, you know, geared or intended to have, right? So this superficial diagnosis of issues will always bring you back to the same uh, square one, to the same starting point. Weren't we just told, brother, weren't we just told, believe women? We have to believe all women. What about Central Park Karen? What about Amy Cooper? We should believe her. We should, that person should take her for face value. If that was not recorded, you know yeah. what I mean? It would be oh. like, oh no, we gotta believe, uh, we have to believe women. So all these like uh, like these solutions or all these treatments for the diseases that ail society, for some reason it keeps bringing us back to square one. We keep getting back to square one, yeah. and the, and people won't appreciate until we come at it from uh, a perspective, from an, uh, a view that listen, there has to be some knowledge greater than us. As human beings, we try to solve it from a human humanistic perspective, a human being perspective. We keep falling, we keep, you know, ailing, we keep, keep going back to square one. There has to be a higher source of knowledge that we can draw upon to give us the solutions for our societal ills. People need, this is, that's why that question is so fundamental at this point. And Muslims, I don't know why Muslims would shoot themselves in the foot by saying, okay, let's not talk about that. What has all your academic rhetoric done for you, man? What has all this like debating and all this coming up with like these postmodernists? It just keeps bringing you back to the same position, right? Well, you know, look, I mean, I think, I think one of the things which I hope we can address to the best of our ability in this podcast or what's, what's remaining in terms of podcasts is when we say that the Prophet وسلم, spoke about Asabiyya and tribalism and racism and how ultimately it's, it's jahiliya. Right. Yeah. Of course, the solution to Jahiliya is Islam, isn't it? So yeah. 
Jahiliyyah of Quraysh in the peninsula was addressed by the, the message of Islam, which Allah, which Prophet brought to his people, right? And then beyond Arabia and then beyond, beyond the peninsula. If that's the case, then I guess what people, and, and, I, and I think this is perhaps what many are seeking, if, if they yes. if truly, is if we sloganeer and mm. say, like, Islam is the solution, Islam eradicates racism. I think what people generally want from that is now practical steps as to what yes. that means. That's yes. one point number two is I will tell you this, brothers and sisters, and I don't want to dishearten anyone, right? Yeah. Asabiya existed at the time of the Prophet, even after Islam, and it existed throughout Islamic civilization. Hundred yeah. percent. No one no one is promising a race utopia. Yeah. No Islam Islam never made the claim. Islam never made the claim that forget about race utopia. That very good point. Very good point. Jannah is utopia. Yeah. Jannah is utopia. We we wait for utopia in Jannah, but for now we're gonna have many issues, and we're gonna have this issue till Yomil Kiyama. Yeah. Even the fact, even those who say, "Yo, Akhi, we'll wait till Imam Mahdi comes." Inshallah, he'll be sorted. When Imam Mahdi comes, according to the 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 kind of Ahl Sunnah, is that when Imam Mahdi comes, there's gonna be a dispute between. Three sons or some sons of the of the of the Khalifa. So there's gonna be disputes even when Imam Mahdi comes. So the there's been disputes I got amongst the Malaika, brother. The angels have had disputes. You understand what I'm saying? So the point I'm trying to make, and, and I want to tell Muslims this. Wallahi, yeah. we, and, and I said this when I came to Canada as well, brothers and sisters. We don't claim that Islamic civilization was a utopia. Yes. The Prophet sallallahu was the best of creation, the best human being that Allah has that has walked this earth. And even when he had the community for 10 years in Medina, it was not a utopia. Was it a utopia, Dr. Saeed? No, it wasn't. They had their issues, man. They had to deal with things, man. The most rightly guided caliphs, right, who implemented the Sharia to the best of their ability. They had problems. So mm. we need to move away from this thing that Islam somehow is going to deliver a race utopia or a societal utopia. No, no, that's not going to happen. But I will bring some, I will, so what I think we need to do is have a real discussion and a practical discussion as to, number one, what is our priorities? When it comes to mm. an ummatic view as a believer, what do we, what is our priorities from a global point of view, a regional point of view, a national point of view, and a local point of view, right? Mm. And then yeah. prioritize according to your means and try to remain consistent and firm upon that, right? Yes. You can stand for Philistine and the Uyghurs and the Kashmiris, and you can also stand for your brothers and sisters who are from the African Caribbean community or the African American community. Yeah, but you can do that's that's subhanallah so that's a radical concept for some people. You, you can know, do it's it. like you you can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. You okay. know, whenever I go to Islamic societies in the UK at universities, I also criticize pro-Palestine activists who have taken on the progressive left's take on on, on, on Philistine. I criticize, I have criticized, I've debated Syrians, I've debated Syrians on TV for the kind of solution they're calling for in their country. Now, someone will say, how dare you say that, Dili? You're not Syrian. No, we're Ummat al-Wahid. Yeah. Their affair is my affair. You know, why, you know what you're doing, brother? And I want, the, I want the viewers to appreciate this. We sometimes get focused on what people are doing, but we don't ask why people are doing it. Thank you. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is a fun, more fundamental and more important question than you know, what people are doing. You know, I spoke to some, I spoke to some, um, you know, I'm, I mean, for the last three, four years, I've tried my best to raise awareness about the Uyghur situation in occupied East Pakistan. And I've met a number of Uyghur activists from different ideological persuasions, nationalists, separatists, liberals, uh, what's known as the more kind of Islamic elements, 
Mm. And I've said to them in a very brotherly way that, look, I understand the plight. Yeah, I understand. I can never feel it because what's going on there is horrific. Yeah, two million in concentration camps. And that's just to begin with what's actually happening there and then that's our society. However, I cannot support you if you're calling for something that doesn't fall within the Islamic framework. And I will say the same to an Uyghur. I will say the same to a Palestinian. I will say the same thing to a Kashmiri. I will say the same thing to a Syrian. I'll say the same thing to an African Caribbean or an African American. Mm. And if you're offended by the fact that I, uh, through, through Islamic research and the guidance of righteous scholars and, and looking at Islamic source scripts and, and adopting a particular manhaj, right, in, in what Islam has to say about a particular issue, or all issues for that matter, if you've got a problem with that, then I can't. I, I can't subscribe to what you're calling for blindly. I will acknowledge the injustice. I will acknowledge the oppression. But the solution has to be from Islam. Mm. I'm sorry. I cannot call for what you're calling upon. Mm. And sometimes, we, you know, people won't like it. And I've said this to so many of us. And Alhamdulillah, bro, sometimes when I've spoken to some black Muslim brothers and sisters, uh, with regards to the work of Five Pillars, even locally within my community in Bedford, they know this. I said to them, look, I, 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 I gun Palestinians as much as I gun Syrians, as much mm. as I gun... Now, how many times do I, have I spoken to Palestinians? I say, so how's, how's, uh, how's working with the uh, UN coming along? Well, mm-hmm. without like Hamza Yusuf in that kind of very condescending way, I'm mm-hmm. saying, have we not realized mm-hmm. that the liberation of Al-Quds and Masjid Al-Aqsa will come at the hands of the believers? That never in our history, never in the 14 centuries of Islamic history, has liberation or oppression ever been uplifted at the hands of non-Muslims or when an oppressor has miraculously woken up and said, right, I'm not going to oppress people no more. No. Mm. Victory, Allah has given victory and liberation through the hands of believers when it's matters pertaining to the believers. Mm. And if we look at human history, Dr. Saeed, mm. and if, if the listeners and viewers, I would stand corrected if anyone could give me a single example. From Adam Islam to 2020, mm. when has there ever been a case where oppressed people, that their oppression has been removed or uplifted unless it was a miracle or a punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, unless it was external intervention due to some kind of uh, religious or, or a different kind of affinity, or was it, or, or unless it was internal resistance and fighting oppression. Those are the only three ways that oppression has ever been uplifted in human history. Miracle or punishment of Allah, external intervention for the sake of a, a, a greater reason, affinity, mm. whether, whether it be mainly religion, but it could be other things. And thirdly, mm. the people themselves have resisted and fought oppression and removed it themselves. Mm. So, quite frankly, I can't subscribe to any of these global issues if the paradigm and the framework isn't Islamic. Now, someone may say to you, oh, mm. brother, Dini, that's a cliche. Oh, brother, Dini, we've heard these things. Oh, brother, you know, this is like, what I mean by an Islamic solution mm. is that what we're essentially calling upon has a grounding in Islamic source texts, the Quran, mm. the Sunnah the ijma of the sahaba and the, the, the analysis of all these all these um, scripture of the righteous scholars mm. right and and to make sure that the things that we're calling for and how we're doing it doesn't fall into the haram and is allowed mm. and what are we calling for so i, I i'm always baffled when i meet pro palestine yeah. activists for example pro palestine activists free free palestine free free pa- yeah akhi, what do you mean by free palestine talk to me Harib. Yeah. Free Palestine. Talk to me, in it. Um, yeah. um, I'm, um, I'm talking about removing the oppression. How? Mm. Oh, Two-state solution. Also, oh, you, so you recognize the 67 borders? 
You mm. recognize the 73 borders? You mm. recognize the 48 borders, Akhi? Mm. They're stuck. Because you know that most Muslims, most Palestinians, won't recognize a fingertip of Israel. You know this, yeah? Yeah. Some may say, some may say well, Yanni, you know, pragmatically, we have to settle for the two-state, and then, Yanni, we work from there. Fine. But I'm talking about those who don't have a clue. Yeah. Yeah? We need to stop this blind... You know, trend-focusing, trend-chasing activism. Wallahi, this is not from our deed. Mm. Islam has the answer for all of mankind's affairs. So, so living in Western uh, societies and governments, obviously, we have to operate in a framework where uh, they're not coming from uh, giving uh, their constitution subjugation to the deen of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So now, how do Muslims now operationally? make some type of uh provide some type of benefit from their dean within the society or provide some type of leadership uh within these uh western framework it's to actually have discourse bro it's to actually talk to people yeah. to people that yeah. love the society and, and i and this goes for academics this goes for activists this goes for faith leaders this goes for all those ulama and mashaikh and faith leaders who are who have been involved in the interfaith for the last 20 years mm. is that look how far, how, how much has your interfaith got you? Well and truly, mm. what? I mean, I mean look, I, I, this is not a digression point. This is a rele relevant point because it's, it's yeah. an example that I want to cite, Dr. Sayyid. Mm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran that when we engage with the people of the book is to find a common word between us. Mm. And what is that common word? Is to believe in Allah and not to associate partners with him. Yes. One of my teachers said to me, the interfaith dialogue of these days is them giving us da'wah. Mm. So what I'm saying is to have meaningful discussions, meaningful mm. engagement where you are providing a practical solution from our moral ethical code, right? Mm. And I can understand why that's scary. I can understand why that's very, you know, you feel pressurized and scared to do that because of just the, the, the very anti-Muslim Islamophobic environment that currently exists in Western societies. I get that. But where has 20 years of not doing that got us? Mm. Where has 20 years of not doing that got us? Where has 20 years of separating ourselves from Al-Qaeda and ISIS got us? Where has 20 years of saying that we're not terrorists, accept us, we condemn this, we condemn that, where has that got us? The time is nigh. The time is nigh for us to start having engagement. So basically, instead of saying what we are not, we need to start saying who we, we are. are. Exactly. Yeah, who, who we are. Yeah, this is what we're calling for. Yeah. And so who I really want to praise what was at the moment in the podcast is Imam Dawood Walid, Hafidahullah. Mm. Yeah. And you know the kind of advice that he's given you, you know, uh, since the outbreak of the George Floyd protest. Well, like, I've been I've been seeing his posts and stuff, and I saw his lives. And you know, you know, for me, I mean, I mean for, in North America in the States, mm. he's provided some really good steps in the sense that he's saying that look, the justice, the injustice is real, the oppression is real. Anyone who yeah. denies this is denying reality, and not only mm. you deny right reality, you're siding with the oppressors. Mm. But we have a framework, we have a guidance, we have a paradigm, we have Allah's revelation, we have the Sunnah of the Prophet. We have these things where we have a particular framework upon which we work from what is halal, what is haram, what is permissible, what is not. And I'm mm. glad that him and others have provided that kind of leadership and guidance, right? Mm. And, and, and I, I think that needs to happen at every facet of life. Mm. And I know it's difficult. Like I said, you know, like, you know, me and you can confidently perhaps speak about these things, bro. But we have to also accept that so many Muslims aren't. Mm. We have to 
that so many Muslims, there, there is a genuine fear. There is a genuine complex which they're not confident to talk about or to articulate their deen in a manner, forget about, forget about to provide solutions, to even articulate fundamentals of their deen. So really, stage one has to happen is that if you want to stand up for the deen, you want to give answers and solutions from the deen, but you don't know how to, then you need to learn the deen, number one. Number two, if you have that level of understanding or you're in the process of gaining knowledge in the sacred sciences or, or whatever it may be, then you need to mm. also at the same time understand that how do I now get this knowledge and now provide practical solutions, right? Mm. What does Islam say about injustice? What does Islam say mm. about What does Islam say about X, Y, and Z? What does Islam say about poverty? What does Islam say about um, the way um, diseases are, are supposed to be dealt with or contained? So many issues. You need to, to equip yourself and you start having these discussions from the standpoint of a confident Muslim, right? Mm. Because fundamentally, if you don't have that empowering perspective and take on your deen, someone else is going to be giving you that one. Mm. And without even knowing you're going to adopt stuff and you're not going to, you're not going to understand. Mm. There are so many people that I've met that have adopted language. And remember, brothers, this is a language mm. is, is, a, is a tool of power. Mm. Language is a tool of power. We say things on a daily basis, and, so, and many of these things that we say has roots in ideologies and epistemologies which are in contradiction with Islam, and we don't even know these things, right? Mm. And there are things which we should be saying which is absolutely from our tradition. So, mm. so when it comes to language and, and the kind of words and terminologies that we use or the concepts that we use to address some of the Ummah's problems or even problems at home, whether it be anti-racism, poverty, employment, crime, whatever it may be, we mm. need to find the solution because Islam has a solution. Mm. And, 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 and again, from, from a non-cliche point of view, mm. it requires you to study. It requires mm. you to study with people of knowledge it requires you to assess reality it, it, it requires you to get rid of all the baggage that you may have in your mind leave that out there and approach the deen of islam as something which allah told us in the quran is mm. the only thing that's going to take mankind from darkness into light mm. if your rab who created you has told you that the deen of islam will take you from darkness into light then mm. you need to give your baggage learn the deen and actually start conveying it on mm. as many platforms as you can, on as many levels as you can, and trying to take the discussion, any discussion that is, obviously it requires hikmah, it requires mm. wisdom, it requires tactful language. No one's saying to go guns blazing and start dropping, you know, hukums and, and, and fatwas in, in, in certain, mm. certain things. That build a confidence within your deen, learn mm. how to articulate it, and go and engage. Go and yeah. engage. Go and try influence, use soft power, use whatever you need to do to influence mm. policy, to influence community decisions, to influence mm. protests, to influence activism, to influ influence da'wah, to influence your respective masajid institutions, um, um, outwardly uh, community engagement. Mm. And, 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 and that's what it is, man. You're making some very, very uh, you know, valid points. Just on the last point that you um left off at just because we've been talking about muhammad ali muhammad ali actually um mentioned very famously he said i don't care about boxing he said i just want to be uh uh famous in this boxing world to use it as a platform uh to give a message to give my message to people you know what i mean so i think uh using whatever influence that we have i think uh is uh, a very productive type of attitude one thing i think people should also be aware of that there is something 
like social engineering and manipulation. And we and we don't want to fall victim to that. You know, brother, uh, when you talk about race, I remember, in, okay, imagine living in Canada and like the Canadian community, society is gripped with the O.J. Simpson trial, okay? So I just want you to get the level of how people are socially manipulated. That O.J. Simpson trial, brother, does it have anything to do with Canada? Does it have anything to do at all? They broadcast, I remember, they broadcast the live result of the O.J. Simpson trial in my school. That's mud. Okay. That's Not only that, the reaction is going is 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 crazy. When the when the verdict was broadcast of the O.J. Simpson trial live, I remember, I was in drama class. We were all standing with bated breath listening to the verdict to be announced like a football score not redraw oh man it's as if we were like as if canada you know i don't think we would have that much attention if canada had built its own rocket to land on the moon honestly we were standing there with bated breath and as soon as the verdict was announced not guilty all the brown and black and minority people started cheering and all the white people were like down as if they had lost their grandmother. Like they were just, they're and just like, oh, I remember my drama teacher, this white guy's like, no. And as if like they had lost like the, the, their most dearest Nana was taken away from them. You know what I mean? And I, and now that I look back at it, I'm like, Subhana, look at how easily people are manipulated tribalistically. Like even for us as, I think like uh, Chris Rock put it best. He's like, it's like black people too happy, white people too sad. He's like, I'm still waiting for my OJ prize. You know, like we were too, like, what did we get out of that? Right. So, but see how easily people are manipulated, uh, whether it's identity, politics, whatever. Like if you're looking at right now, uh, because United States obviously is in the forefront of the media and is usually the catalyst for a lot of the different types of world discussions that occur. But do you see how very quickly narratives can change? So right now, the narrative is that, okay, we are uh, we are standing with the protesters. We're taking a knee with the protesters. But don't you think through uh, a lot of um, specific or uh, underhanded uh, social engineering that that can change very quickly? If the economy is harmed very hard, it'll be like, oh, it's these protesters' fault. And then you'll have the institutional and corporate powers saying, "Listen, you need to put your 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 um, uh, your, your, uh, your backs behind us." For example, I'll show you how I'll give you an example of how quickly people are they change their attitudes and how it's manipulated. Trump right now, uh, his one of his biggest bases is the um, evangelical base. Okay, so eighty plus percent they backed him uh, in the elections. Okay. Right now, that has dropped to uh, 62%, okay? So that evangelical base is very important for him to become re-elected. And so people are saying, okay, Trump is like, okay, he's out. Like, you know, he's not going to get elected. Look at how, like, this is harming him politically. But guess what? When you look back at 2016, the evangelical base had around a 60% approval for him as well. Mm. Because, you know, all those things came out. Uh, you know, he's saying grab women by their private parts and all of these different things came uh, came out about him. But when it came down to elections, 80 plus percent 
showed up for him on the on, on the elections. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? So do you see how quickly manipulation can occur within the media? How very, very quickly people can be socially engineered to believe something else? And with the evangelicals, I feel that they have proven that they are not morally consistent. And I feel that where the Muslims can take leadership, there is no isms, there is no political party, there is no tribe right now that is showing any type of moral consistency, whether you're part of the atheist tribe, whether you're part of the neoliberalist tribe, where you're part of anything, nobody's showing moral consistency. So if Muslims say, though no matter what trends, like, you know, uh, you know, people talk about Hilf al-Fadul, what about Hilf al-Fadul, okay? The pact to stand up for any oppressed against an oppressor. Yes, Rasul said he would sign on to that if that was introduced today. But that's just part of the morally consistent attitude of our Rasul And so when we show ourselves to be inconsistent, we show ourselves to be like anyone else, that we can be trustworthy, but we can be untrustworthy. But to be Sadiq Al-Amin, it shows that you are morally consistent. So the Muslims, if they look at the long game, that there will be times where we'll be on the wrong side of trending issues. But at the end of the day, society will have respect for us because they'll say that the Muslims are morally consistent. Yeah, they've Absolutely. always stood. They've always stood up and did what they believed in. They don't change it, and that there's an there's an integrity in that that is missing in society right now, and I believe that is a practical way that Muslims can show leadership. You know what I mean? Like beyond like, you know, the, the discourse that you've talked about, we need more ummah uh, work and not uh, like we need ummah talk, but we need more ummah work. Absolutely. You know what I mean? We, we need some, we need to put in some of that work. You know what I mean? I, I, I think, I think where Muslims have over the years shown moral inconsistency or just general inconsistency on, on, on affairs, whether they be global, local, national, wherever it may be, it's because unfortunately, many of our institutions and groups and even leaders have been influenced by ideologies and, and, and ways of thinking that are alien to Islam and co in contradictory to Islam. One would argue, well, does that mean that they have sinister agendas? No, it just means that the sunnah of mankind is the fact that the, the lesser and those who are weak and oppressed and have inferiority complex will always imitate those who they see as leaders. It's normal, right? So I think you made a very valid point, bro. I mean, I think Muslims need to get to a position where they need to remain firm upon the deen and you're absolutely right, there will be times where we may as a community have to take certain positions which are not popular, which are not trendy um, and not necessarily that either. Maybe the solutions that we're calling for will not be trendy. Mm. So we'll stand on a particular matter, hey, not a problem, but then what we're calling for or how, we, how, what, how we're calling for it may be the problem. And that is where we have to be on the right side of history and inshallah it will be a benefit for us in this life and the next. To be consistent upon the deen. And, and it's difficult. Because how many times have you seen this man, this, this, this double talk, this double speak, this duality? Like you'll have many Muslim organizations, for example, say that we have to be kind and patient with uh, non-Muslims and we have to be forgiving and we have to, you know, uh, endure. And then... That attitude goes out the window when you're dealing with your fellow Muslims. That kindness and compassion and softness out the window. 
You know, the same uncle that's going to be like, hey, oh, you know, uh, uh, welcome to the masjid and very nice and hugging and have yeah. a samosa. That same one will like tell like a kid, you know, like get lost, get out of here. You know what I mean? What are you doing causing trouble in, uh, in the masjid? So we do that on, on so many different issues, man. There's so many different issues that we just, it's like so inconsistent. And then we ask ourselves, man, why are we in the same position day in and day out? Bro, as I, I mean, I think I've even said this when I came yeah. and addressed various MSAs in, in West Canada, is that subhanAllah, we've got to a stage where we are willing to do interfaith, yeah, with the with yeah. Jews and Christians, the Jews who reject Isa alayhi salam, the Christians who attribute Isa alayhi salam as a begotten son and, and God and so forth. We even do interfaith with mushrikeen and, 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 and atheists. And we'll sit down with them and have samosas and tea and coffee. And hey, no one's saying there's anything wrong with that, depending on what you're working towards. But when it comes to sitting down with your fellow brothers from different groups, nah. Mm. When it comes to hosting mashayikh and ulama and, 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 and du'a from other groups and persuasions, no. Mm. This is major issues, you know. Mm. That we're willing to do interfaith upon, upon those who are upon disbelief. But we will not do interfaith upon those who we read the same Qur'an. Yeah. The same prophet. We have the same aqidah in terms of the principles, the, the, the standing principles. We will not sit with them because mm. of whatever you know, theological, methodological differences that we have. Mm. And this is, this is a major problem. And again, again, mm. this is a different kind of asabiya, right? Mm. It's not the conventional tribalism, racism, and nationalism, but it's, it's, it's sectarianism can even delve into the realms of asabiya. Not, not on a conventional point of view, but the unwillingness, the mm. unwillingness, bro, yeah? Mm. To, to sit and work with your fellow Muslims, mm. reluctant to do that, but an open door policy with everyone else, mm. you know? And the maddest thing is as well, is that those who want to harm the deen of Islam and those who want to subjugate and oppress Muslims, irrelevant of their, of their ethnicity or race, know the strength of our unity. They know mm. this. How did... How did the British in World War One ultimately defeat the Ottomans? The Ottomans mm. were regarded as the sick man of Europe, but mm. they were they couldn't defeat them though. This sick man of Europe that had outdated weapons, that had outdated an outdated navy, fundamentally, how did they at the end beat the Ottomans by mm. creating the Arab revolt? What mm. did they call the Arab revolt? They told the Arabs, mm. "Your prophet was an Arab. Mm. They're claiming to be." The flag bearers mm. of Islam. You're going to take these orders from Turks, mm. who are not from yeah. ethnic origin, descendants of the Prophet. Yeah. They're like, la. Yeah. What happened in the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of Lausanne, and the Treaty of. What happened? Yeah. The Sharif of Mecca was, was promised the caliphate. He didn't get a caliphate. He got a desert yeah. in Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he got a sandcastle. He got a sandcastle. You want a castle? Build one in sand. Just think about that, brothers and sisters. When, when our enemies, when those who want to distinguish the light of Islam and the light of Allah, they know the strength of our unity. They know the strength of our unity. But for some reason, we don't seem to understand it. We, do, we don't seem to understand it. We don't seem to want it on a real practical level. And I think that's even what many of our black Muslim brothers and sisters have a grievance towards. That you guys talk about one ummah, but show us one ummah. And if that's the case, then we need to do it. Mm. And I think the same... I'll say the same for Pakistanis and Bengalis. I'll say the same towards Kurds and Turks. 
I'll say the same thing to Khalijis and Maghrebis. I'll say the same thing to blacks and the whites. That we need to fix up. We really yeah. need to fix up. That our enemies know the strength of our unity. They know it. And and there's so many examples in our history. Wallahi. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, what you said right now, the, 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 which, what you pointed out right now is happening, uh, or back then is happening now. It's like, are you going to let an Arab or a Desi speak about, uh, you know, civil rights to black people? You know what I mean? Like, they, they could, they're doing the same thing now, man, to keep us apart. You know, like, are you going to let non-Palestinian people speak about the Palestinian issue? Are you going to, it's like... Like you want to keep everyone yeah. me, divided, me, you know what I mean? Me, like let me tell you, 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 you understand what I'm saying? Like uh, th this is not something that is new. It's this the strategy is being rehashed over and over again. I mean, so many times I've 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 faced. I mean, I'm gonna, I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters. Any of you guys who, who who may even remote, I hope that's not the case. But I hope that if anyone's thinking, oh, there might be some inconsistency. Let me tell you something. Do you know how many times I've sat down and I've spoken to? Uh, Pan-Arabists, Arab socialists, Arab nationalists. Do you know how many times I've spoken to people? And, and, and they're like, and they've tried it. They go, who are you to tell? I'm not, who are you? Mm. was not a Palestinian. Mm. He was Iraqi. He was a Kurd. Mm. Yeah? And, and, and he gathered the troops. He united the, 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 the different factions. And then he went and liberated um, Al-Aqsa. Yeah? yeah? yeah. Um, Sayyid Qutus, Rahimahullah. Yeah. What was he? He was Mamluk, he was Turkic. Mm. But he, he defended uh, Asham from the Mongols. Yeah. Right? There's so many examples from our history. You, you, you know what, man? Let's go back to the beginning. Who did Rasul Sallallahu love more? Bilal or Abu Lahab? Loved Bilal, of course, bro. Yeah. Do you know, you know, that's your own... Forget, that's more connected. Your tribe, your family, your uncle... And he's gonna love somebody from, uh, you know, whose who, whose uh, history is from Africa, who is a foreigner to his land, uh, completely different. You know what I mean? And the, he and loves the, more Bilal than he's gonna love Abu Lahab. And if I'm correct, right. Sayyid, the Prophet Sallam's wetness was also Habashi, I think. Yes, 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 yes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so I mean, I mean, I mean, and how many desis do we know that are called Bilal, bro? Yeah. So many. Yeah. Yeah. Bilal, Bilal, Bilal. And loving and, and lovingly they're called Billu. Billu. Yeah. Billu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How many? Like it's a cross, man. And and that's again it, this 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 tribalism, this nationalism has uh this ha it's it's basically hamstrung us. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's completely uh disabled us from actually moving forward. Uh, like uh, and I feel bad about this. Like I'm sure you under you you're aware of that initiative uh that happened not too long ago. The name of the conference is escaping me. But you know when Turkey went to Indonesia and at first mm -hmm. Pakistan was supposed to be involved yeah. in it and then Pakistan pulled back because of uh, because of Arab pressure. It's like, man, these initiatives, we're the first ones. It's not like uh, there's non-Muslims nations preventing us from putting this together. We are preventing ourselves from coming together. The whole idea was to come up with, like, you know, Islamic initiative projects, maybe an Islamic channel, media that shows uh, yeah. the, the proper Islamic viewpoint, you know, all of these different issues. Like, on one hand, you know, 
you're 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 so quick to say, hey, we're 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 one ummah, come together as one. And then on the other hand, it's like, okay, unless we are in control, there should be no uh, type of unity. No one should initiate any of that uh, any of that type of unity. You know? Yeah, bro. I mean, I mean, yeah, um, just just on a more kind of a local note for the UK, yeah. right? Yeah. There was there was a report that was published by the Black Muslim Forum, and mm. what this what this uh, research found was some very shocking levels of racism that was experienced by our black Muslim brothers and sisters mm. in ISOCs. So ISOCs is our equivalent of MSAs, mm. uh, and stuff like this. So when me and you spoke about practical solutions, brothers and sisters, those of you who are listening and watching, you we need to work in different levels, right? Mm. You know what your reach is. You know what your means are. You know who you have access to. Mm-hmm. You know that you have local responsibilities, you know you have national responsibilities, you know you have ummatic global responsibilities, right? Yeah. And if our black Muslim brothers and sisters are telling us yeah. that this is what we've experienced, right? Listen to them mm. and not just listen, listen to them and then ask them how is it that we can help to make this easier? Mm. Never promise to eradicate because you can never eradicate. Asabi and racism and these kind of things will remain mm. for many, many centuries to come. Never mm. promise a utopia. And at the same time, I will tell my black Muslim brothers and sisters that do not expect a utopia. Mm. Allah and his messenger never promised us a utopia. Jannah is utopia. So mm. we have we have responsibilities. You have responsibilities to the Ummah beyond your respective countries and residents. Mm. You have responsibilities to your local community. Mm. You have responsibility to the non-Muslims within your community. Mm. That many of the scholars, uh, classical and contemporary, have said, in mm. fact, that one of the caveats for non for Muslims to remain in or to reside in non-Muslim lands as minority is that we give da'wah, mm. right? that we convey the message. So there's so many things that we need to be doing at different levels. It may be mind-boggling, but it can be done. And trust mm. me, it can be done. You really have you done anything? Have you, have you uh, personally have you uh, seen something like? these type of racist rhetoric or policies or practices within the community and have taken some type of step or t- you've spoken oh. with someone or advised someone to, to, to change that uh, well, you know, attitude? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. I'm yeah. going to be absolutely honest with you, right? I've seen more intra-Desi racism towards other Desis. Than yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've seen that too. <laughs> I've made a I've made an oath on this. I have seen more racism, Bengalis versus Pakistanis, Pakistanis yeah. versus Pakistanis, Bengalis versus Bengalis, to yeah. each other, to families, to relatives, than what I've yeah. seen. So in my town in Bedford, we have two predominantly African uh, Caribbean or Black masajids. One is a kind of Masjid Al Falah. It's of a kind of a Salafi persuasion. Majority yes. of African brothers. Then we've got another message which is like East Africans, Tanzanians, and mashallah, the, the relationship is very brotherly, right? Yeah. In terms of overt racism, I mean, I've not heard anything locally. I've heard things definitely outside of my hometown. Mm. Uh, but I've seen more racism internally amongst Desis, right? Mm. And look, bro, let's... What do you find it... Do you, do you find, like, uh, in terms of the ra- racism that's endured, do you find uh, the black people have... In UK, generally speaking, do they endure worse racism or do you feel uh, like the Desi community endures worse or is it pretty similar? Okay, so this is this. I'm, I'm glad we've actually managed to get to this. So one yeah. of the 
one of the biggest problems that UK activists are doing mm. is they're bringing the American experience to the UK. You cannot do that. You yes. can't do that because the African Americans in the US have been there for nearly 400 years, if not longer. Yes. These these are the progeny and the descendants of people who were free people that were enslaved and bought mm. in their tens and hundreds of thousands via slave ships to mm. work enslaved. Yeah, in mm. the UK that's not the case. In the UK, mm. those who came from the West Indies or the or, or the or the Caribbean, they came like the Desi communities, right? Mm. They at the same time, around the 50s, 60s, after World War II, to rebuild mm. this economy, to rebuild the empire, right? We came to rebuild the economy and contribute in different in different industries. Mm. I would go as far as to say this. One brother said to me, he's a sociologist, mm. and well, he's a good practicing brother. He said, look, we shouldn't engage in oppression Olympics. He goes, it's not mm. good. He goes, we, we, he goes, because this is a really dangerous thing. We shouldn't say we are more oppressed than you and, and somehow we create an identity. Right? He goes, this is Wallahi, he goes, this is, this is not Islamic. Yeah? Mm. He goes, but let's talk facts here. Mm. When those who came from the Caribbean, the West Indies, who came to the UK, mm. they had the same name as the white men, the white Caucasian indigenous people. They had the same religion. Mm. They had very similar social practices, drinking, you know, going to certain clubs, etc. Yes, they had their own clubs, but in many cases they would intermix because there was no segregation laws in the in the UK. We didn't have this, yeah. Yes, yes. So, 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 so they they had similar churches. They had the same religion, the same name, similar mm. food. Um, mm. Whereas when the Desis arrived, they looked different. They spoke different. They mm. ate. there's more cultural differences. Of course, major, majorly, mm. right? Um, but there is that context that the Jamaicans and the West Indians that came. They still came from a kind of historical basis of we were once we were once your slaves, mm. and the Desis came as you guys colonized us for three hundred years. So we mm. came with that baggage, but you mm. cannot compare the experience of African Americans to that of the situation in the UK. In many parts of the UK, the African Caribbean community and the Asians were one against the far right and the and, and the racists. In many parts of the UK, unfortunately and sadly to say. African Caribbeans were also involved in what's known as Paki bashing, right? Mm. Um, they were also involved in extorting shops and battering mm. Desi taxi drivers and takeaway owners, right? Mm. Where there was an overt threat of white, uh, the far right, there were cases, especially in Birmingham, in Luton, uh, mm. in some parts of the, the north of the country, in Nottingham, in some parts of Manchester, you know, there was divisions between the South Asian community and the and the African Caribbean community. Wasn't it, wasn't the Bradford riots as well yes, centered the around uh, the uh, Asian the yes. DC community? So, so um, in two thousand and one, in between mm. July and August, there was the Northern riots, which took place mm. mainly in Bradford and Oldham and other parts. And this was ultimately a race riot um, mm. between uh, predominantly Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and the whites and the police, right? Mm. And there's many rumors as to what triggered this riot. Some claim that it was a drug deal that went wrong between a Desi gang and a white gang. Others said that an uncle was beaten up on the way back from a masjid. Um, mm. The whites claimed that uh, an, 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 a, one of their elderly got robbed by a Desi gang. No one knows conclusively what the reason for why that, that riot started or those riots mm. started. It lasted for two months. South Asians were disproportionately arrested and, and, and prosecuted, 
Um, mm-hmm. And and what happened? What happened in that year? If so, so in August two thousand and one, the riot. What happened in September, Doctor Said? Nine eleven. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and obviously in the UK, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Desis, so Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, and Indians make up like 80 to 85 percent of the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. So, okay, whether you like it or not, and I don't think I don't necessarily even say this is something that's right. South Asian and Muslim has nearly become synonymous because mm-hmm. there isn't a large community of Turks or Arabs or West Africans and so forth, right? Because we make up the ethnic demographic majority. So mm-hmm. many white non-Muslims, South Asian, or the P word is synonymous to being a Muslim. In the mm. same way that the word Turk was synonymous to be, be meaning Muslim in Europe for centuries. Yeah? Yes, yeah. So the point I'm trying to make is you cannot compare what's going on in the US to the UK. Mm. Um, completely different um, thingy. I, I mean, I also accept the fact that I, I can't comment for Canada, bro, but I, I know that in the US, Desi and Arab diaspora communities are a much newer community. I know that socioeconomically they're they're, they're a bit they're a bit more affluent in terms of per per capita per household. I read a research on Pew that um, you know Arab and Desi communities um, get like 13% more income annual income per household, even compared to certain white communities in the U.S. Right? Mm. Whereas in the U.K., no, in the U.K., the three most socioeconomically deprived communities is number one the African Caribbean community, then the Bangladesh. And then the Pakistanis. The most affected communities from the COVID-19 were African Caribbean and Bangladeshis, right? Mm. You can't compare what's going on in the US and broadly speaking, North America to the UK. The UK has its own context, it has its own history. So would you say then there's a big correlation with the pervasiveness of uh racism and class? Do you think there's uh there is? I mean, I mean most definitely, yeah. bro. Look, at the end of the day, cl- Social classes is something that develops in, in capitalist societies, right? Without, without totally subscribing to Marxist worldviews, we can't deny that there's certain uh, sectors of society which has been engineered to live in a particular way and to live in particular areas with restricted opportunities. We know this, right? Mm. For us, what as Muslims we say is that we don't let that influence the way we navigate throughout life. And what we have to offer mankind. We know mm. these exist. We know these disadvantages exist. But we're not going to subscribe our entire worldview according to those who have set those engineering models for us. That's mm. the of the believer. The believer is that we know these things exist. We know why they exist. But we're not going to subscribe to those methods to overcome these things that the oppressor himself has offered to us and doesn't mind mm. us. No, 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 yeah. no. We're not yeah. going to make you give us the tools which and to make us think that we're overcoming. You, we're yeah. not going to have tokenistic, uh, tokenistic uh, co-option of our people or our our, our deen. We, yeah. For example, let me give you something example. We've got 16 Muslim MPs. We've got 16 Muslim parliamentarians in the UK. Majority mm-hmm. of them are Pakistani or Bangladeshi, right? Mm-hmm. Not a single one, not a single one voted against the same-sex relation education that's going to be taught to children as young as four and five in schools starting from September. How are they a reflection of, of the Ummah? How are they are a reflection of the community sentiments? Because when you come to the community, 
And you speak mm-hmm. about LGBT, same-sex relationship, and whatever it may be, we seem to be a, a near consensus. Yeah? Yeah. But so do you feel, as, as such, do you feel that uh, perhaps in recent times, uh, like Islamophobia, although I don't like the term Islamophobia, they just use that because there's uh, no common term that's recognized by people, but do you feel uh, that Islamophobia now has become uh, more uh, oppressive than even racism in the UK, I'm saying. Uh, I, I think like uh, it is debatable uh, perhaps in in, in in other places, but worldwide, my, uh, you know, just looking statistically, just looking statistically, like if you look at the different institutionalized programs, uh, whether you're looking at the media, the disparity in the media of how media covers Muslims, if you look at uh, the industrial military complex, uh, the effects of that, uh, if you look at all of these different things, it seems just disproportionately Muslims as a whole are are, are suffering more from that than uh, even what historically or in recent times racism had an effect on people. What, what would you say? I mean, look, forget about the forget about the UK, right? The fact that the US led war on terror Mm. and even the kind of concerted effort to subdue and censor and quell any kind of Islamic revival within the Muslim majority world Mm. and the wars that have followed, the, the, the wars, the laws, the oppression, the occupation is a testimony to the fact that our oppressors fear something. Mm. They want to silence something. What is this that they're trying to silence? What is it they're trying to censor? They're trying to censor a worldview and a deen and a way of life which is comprehensive and which will take mankind from darkness into light. And that Mm. will manifest in many ways. It may manifest Mm. in the unity of Muslim lands. It may manifest in a coalition of Muslim countries independent of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Mm. It may entail that the French and the British and the American military bases that are all around the Muslim world will get kicked out and told to go do one. It could entail the the, the resources of the Muslim majority world to actually be kept and harnessed for the betterment of those people. It could entail all these things and these things give the powers that be sleepless nights. Mm. Of course, forget about the UK, bro. The global agenda against Islam and Muslim is one that's well known, well documented. Bush has spoken about it. Blair has spoken about it. Um, all the sinister neocon think mm. tanks in the US have spoken about it. They do not want to see the revival of Islam mm. because for, 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 for 1400 years, for 1400 years, mm. or as part of a millennia, Islam and Muslims led mankind in nearly every facet of life. You know, yes. I feel I feel like when when you're, when you're saying this, I and for anybody who's who, who's who's um, viewing this podcast, whether Muslim or non-Muslims, I think people should reflect on the fact that what type of compassion is shown to like or humanity uh, shown to. Muslims and remember, Muslims are white, black, Arab, non-Arab. They see. Yeah. so that particular demographic. What type of compassionate lens is looked at towards Muslims? Are they shown as uh, 
you know, do, are they given any type of empathy? Do we have any type of sympathy for them as just being human beings? Because I feel that even though you have, for example, you have all this racist um, uh, issues in the United States, for example. Let's let's just look at it. Even though, again, we don't want to play the Olympic game and, and, and compare. But we should acknowledge that at least we we are shown views of compassion towards African-Americans. There's video or sorry, there's movies on slavery. You have pop stars, right? That that you're able to identify with and say, okay, yeah, and they speak out, and then we listen to them that are you know black. They speak about the the you know uh, their community and their plights. When these videos are released, look at the at least there's protests. Even worldwide, there's protests, man. They're like protesting all over the world in like white you know Finland. You know what I mean? Like they're 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 doing protests. What is the compassion shown to the Muslim world as a whole when you see the videos coming out of like? Uh, Palestine, where how many they showed? I, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of like that standard practice of them putting their knee on the necks of uh, you know the Palestinians. They're shooting limbs all the time. Like this is all recorded on videos, pictures all the time. There's really no sympathy given uh, to the Palestinian cause in the media. Um, there's no movies that talk about like a a practicing Muslim, you know, being a hero to save the day, or we were looking at them passionately or or compassionately. Um, you know, you don't see that you don't, you, there's no compassionate lens to look at the average Muslim and what they are suffering and what they are enduring, whether it's the Uyghur, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the Palestinians, whether it's the Syrians, because we're talking about, for example, Syria, you know, six, like millions, tens of millions of people being displaced, you know, 65 million people displaced from the Muslim world across the world, right? So do you feel like, man, like I feel like just to let our viewers maybe reflect upon that and take some introspection, what type of compassionate lens is truly given to the harm and suffering that Muslims are enduring? Like look at Abu Ghraib, the pictures are haunting. Like if you look at that, look at, you know, these uh, these black sites that were, you know, for decades and are still operating where it's just the function of that site is just to torture Muslims without uh, any type of due process, right? You know, so, yeah. like, you know, bro. The only person, there's an exception. I'll say there's one exception is uh, Khabib. So he has become like the only one who is like a practicing Muslim that we have looked at in terms of a positive light. And when he speaks about Islam, he, he he's somebody that doesn't hide his Islam and oh. things like that. So oh. I would say in, mo in, in in our modern, current, contemporary times, maybe he's the only one. I'm going to say two things. Um, I don't know how it's going to go down with people who, who listen or watch this podcast. And respectfully, I, I'm not too concerned, to be honest. But I have to say... Yeah. There is an entire popular culture around the co-option of how capitalism has popularized black culture, mm. right? Where even rap and hip hop around the oppression and subjugation of black Americans has been something which corporations have made billions of dollars over. Mm. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves this, and I don't like doing the oppression Olympics, but just think about this for a moment. There are two million, two million, in case you don't know what that means in, in numerical terms, 
there is 2,000 Muslims in a concentration camps in China. Concentration camps where our sisters are being given sterilization pills, where, mm. where the, the, the husband and wives are having to sleep with each other's husband and wives. Horrific things. Horrific. Being forced to eat alcohol and pork. Where's the, yeah, we have some few protests in, outside the White House by some Uyghur activist groups. Wasn't this popular? There's nothing this popular. When was the cause of Philistine ever so popular where millions, millions have gone? I know celebrities, celebrities, you know, influencers, brands, because of course they're not. Of course they're not. You know why they're not? Because the issue of Philistine is to do with Al-Aqsa and Quds. And they know what the Muslim mean, what they truly believe is the solution for this area and solution for all the, and that's not trendy. Mm. You see popular songs about the Taliban or Al-Qaeda? You've seen popular... <laughs> no, it's true, bro. No, 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 let's be honest about it. Oh, I don't care what people are saying. I don't care. But this is... We have to accept it. Yes, our, our black African brothers and sisters, our black American brothers and sisters in humanity and in Islam face horrific levels of systemic oppression in America. But we need to accept something. There is a particular notion of black culture which is very popular and sought after. Mm. Right? Come see me the day when it's popular and trendy to be the Taliban or Bin Laden. Or not even go, not, no, no, don't even go to that because no, I, that no. might be, no, that, that might not be equating the same thing unless you, you talk about gangster culture. Yeah. No, if no, you no. took, if you, if you look at the popularization of gangster culture and like, what does it mean to be a gangster and stuff like that, right? Even, but bro, even the gangster culture, bro, whether it's yeah. drill or grime in the UK or whether yeah. hip hop in the US is still centered around an anti establishment mindset. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, when you look at it from that perspective, I agree. But I would say just just your average um, Muslim doesn't have like that term. They don't look at it from lenses of endearment, like they will look at uh, things that are being capitalized in, in pop culture. Yes, that's true. I will tell you this, right? And and, and just to quickly make a point. The point was that even in these many of these rap songs, they talk about their socioeconomic um, deprivation, and, and as a result, they've had to choose particular lifestyles. That's the last though, brother, because you know old school rappers, mm. they have said that because rap has been so corporatized, the message that rap originally had, mm. anti-establishment, speaking out against you know a lot of the you know rights and things like that. That has been co-opted. Now no one talks about that. Like the ones, the raps that are now popularized is is very, very different. Even like if you look at it from like the era of like Tupac and things like that, they were still talking about some of these, uh, you know, human rights types of issues. But it's now just like. No, 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 not when he joined Death Row, bro. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know, there's still like, you know, there's still like some stuff. But all of that was co-opted into this corporative, like you had at one point uh, Ice Cube, he had a song with Public Enemy, Burn Hollywood Burn. Yeah. Now Ice Cube Man is doing like these white family friendly movies. You know what I mean? Like, are we there yet? You know what I mean? Like, so like. The point I was trying to make is that brothers and sisters, you know, without going into oppression Olympics, especially yeah. when so many black Americans and Africans are Muslims. Yes. Don't forget this. Yes. 20, we are one, man. We are one. We are one. 20% of African Americans are Muslims. Mm. Many of the slaves that were taken, free people that were enslaved were Muslim slaves, right? Mm. They are our brothers and sisters and we're one. But the point, what I want some people to think about is this. Mm. Think about Philistine. 
Think about Kashmir. Think about the situation for Uyghurs. Think about the 600,000, let that number sink in, 600,000 Syrians dead, killed, finished, their entire country decimated by Russia, by Bashar and his allies, and those Western governments who spoke about red lines, so many of them that were crossed, but they did nothing. Just think about that. And think about all the brands, all the celebrities, all the influences, how many of them came out and did what they did? Like what you're seeing right now. Mm. What you're seeing right now with Black Lives Matter and, mm. and, 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 and the, the, the global protests that are taking place, right? Mm. If you want to do them kind of comparisons, let's do it then, innit? We shouldn't have to do it, but think about it. Mm. When was the last time your favorite... I, I, think, I, I think, you know, it, we, uh, I, I just want to be clear with everyone. We don't want people to think that we're making comparisons, but just you need no. to think about these things and you need to connect everything, no. connect everything, put it together. Understand yeah. that the source of all of this is coming from the same place. Absolutely. The same people that are telling us that it's trendy to do Tuesday blackout, that it's trendy to hashtag Black Lives Matter, that it's trendy to, to, to speak out against uh, police brutality, that are telling us that it's trendy, the brands, the influences, the celebrities, the politicians, the point I'm trying to make to you is this, brothers and sisters, because the question you asked me, Dr. Saeed, this is the question you asked me. You said, is Islamophobia worse in the UK than um, racism or anti-black racism? I'm telling you on a global level, mm. the number one agenda for most powers that be, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's France, Britain, America, is to make sure that there is no revival in the Muslim world. Mm. And, and they will make sure that happens with wars, with tyrants, with oppressive laws, with occupation, with sanctions, they'll make sure everything with, 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 with jailing our scholars and our du'at, they will do everything to make sure that doesn't happen. And for me as a Muslim, for me as a Muslim and how I see my global ummatic responsibilities, that's where I see the world, what's, how it's been going for the last 100 years and where it's going to go. You know, during the COVID-19 and the whole kind of 5G thing, mm. people were talking about, oh, brother, you know, the new world order, the new world. I said, what new world order? The current world order is the new world order, and the new world <laughs> order has been around for 200 years. Yeah. I said, the only new world order that we should be preparing for and working towards is an Islamic world order. That's mm. going to take mankind from lightness, from darkness into light. And that's mm. the real world order that the existing world order is working to make sure does not happen. And one might say, oh, brother, did he, you know, it's a very romantic. No, 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 no. Allah and his messenger told us it's going to happen. Allah told us that when we become a people that are worthy of his victory, he will establish us on this earth. Mm -hmm. That he will establish on this earth. Prophet ﷺ told us, he prophesied, you're going to have this, you're going to have Nabuwa, then you're going to have Rashidin, then you're going to have this, and then you're going to have tyranny, then it's mm -hmm. going to be taken away from you, and then it's going to come back. So mm -hmm. we know this. So the only world order that I'm concerned about is an Islamic world order. And the only kind of revival that I'm interested in is the one that's the revival of this deen. Not, mm. not only just for my akhirah or your akhirah, bro, but for, the, for, but for mankind. For mm. mankind. Because, you know, we love to say, oh, the Prophet ﷺ was a mercy to, for mankind. Have you ever pondered what that mercy is, brothers and sisters? Mm. Mm. You know, when we say, oh, the Prophet ﷺ is a mercy, we hear that so much in the da'wah, don't we? Mm. Oh, Prophet Muhammad was a mercy to mankind. What does that mean? That means that if the people do not accept Islam, the akhirah is done. Or if mm. the land of this world is not under the justice of Islam, the people are doomed. Mm. Yeah? So when we say, oh, the Prophet is a mercy to mankind, know what that actually means. It means mm. that the message he, he came with is the solution for mankind. Mm. So 
really bro it's not a, forget yeah. about the and, and i and and i think one thing that i i, I want to make clear is that you know people uh you know, because I agree with what you're saying, but I know how some people interpreted things. Think that oh, does do you think that oh, Muslims need to come over and take over everything Islam? No, we're no. just trying to we're just trying to actually uh, have <laughs> a place where yeah. we can uh, give an example of this is what Islam uh, is. Like we 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 just we we have very humble uh, you know what I mean ambitions. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, for 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 this first for us to even for us to even have a a just society for Muslims uh, to be able to live and practice their deen, for us that's we, we haven't even reached that step. You understand what I'm saying? So, and, and our confidence is is such that if we could show you that this is what the what human beings are capable of, you would be compelled. Absolutely. You would be compelled. You, you would be just self-driven to 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 be a part of it. I remember there was a famous journalist. Um, if anyone's online, you can Google it if you want. His name is John Ware. John Ware is a very famous BBC journalist. He does the show Panorama. Mm. Uh, one time he interviewed me, and um, it was a hit job. But I was recording him as well. He didn't know this, um, mm. and he said to me, um, "Diddy, do you want to do you want Muslims to take over Britain? Do you want to?" Mm. You want to see the Shahada over the Downing Street? Yeah. Well, of course not, John. What made you think that, John? Yeah. Well, you know, he goes, he goes, he goes because on, on the spectrum of things, I see you as, a, you know, as a pan-Islamic and, you know, you yeah. want Muslim unity and, you know, da, da, da. Mm -hmm. I was, but what made you think that I want Muslim to take over the UK and enforce Islam on a predominantly majority non-Muslim now? What makes you think that? Mm. He goes, then what is it that you want? Others, I'm confident that if such a society or civilization re-emerges, I think that the UK will want to be a part of it. And mm. I think they will yearn for it. Because it won't require Muslims to come and invade you. You're going to yeah. want for it to come. And, yes. that, and that was the case with the Sahaba in Asham. That was the mm. case with the Sahaba in, in Al-Masr. That was the case with the Sahaba across North Africa. Mm. Case when the Sahaba wherever they went, they didn't. Mm. In many cases, they were governors ruling over a majority Christian or non-Muslim lands. Mm. People accepted Islam. They saw the justice. Mm. Of Islam. They compared it to the previous justice systems, whether it be mm. the Byzantines or the Persians. They were like, Nah, Islam's good. Mm. We accept it. This mm. is why, even when Islam was in decline from a public point of view, Islam mm. stayed. They mm. stayed. The Masajid stayed. The people held on to mm. the. The systems and the institutions might have fallen, but the dean stayed. So mm -hmm. no, we're not talking about a takeover. Absolutely not. It makes no sense. You, you, you know why? Uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to do a little bit of Psych 101 and go into the psychological thinking of some of the mala, as you mentioned, like the leadership. You know, one of the most fundamental uh, components of human personality or characteristic is reciprocity. Okay. Yeah. That, that's like, uh, it, it transcends culture, nations, different people. So for example... If I smile at you, I expect a smile in return, right? I expect you to smile. I'm smiling at you. I expect to smile at, at in return. You know, if, if if I hit you, I expect to get hit back. You, yeah. you understand what I'm saying? Like a person who is sane, they uh, fundamentally within human DNA is reciprocity. What I feel that a lot of the mala and like a, a certain demographic 
of non-Muslims why they fear a true Islamic society or true Islamic strength so much is they feel they will treat them the same way they treated them initially. You understand what I'm saying? They feel that, oh, we colonized them, we brutalized them, we were so brutal with them. If they come into power, they'll do the same thing to us. And Fatah Makkah, the conquest of Makkah is a beautiful example of what will most likely will end up happening. And, and Fatah Makkah, the, uh, you know, uh, look at how Rasul treated Wahshi. Yeah. The one, the, the person, did he do reciprocity? Oh, you killed my uh, uncle. I'm going to come kill you. No, forgiven. Mm. Uh, Fatah Mecca shows that Muslims, we operate on a different level. We we operate on justice and not revenge. And I think that that's, I think going deep into the cycle, the psyche of why they fear a strong Islamic presence so much is they fear that they will do the same thing that they were guilty of. Oh look, let me. I mean, Fatah Makkah was a beautiful. That's my psych 101 analysis. <laughs> you know, look. I mean, you know, Fatah Makkah. I mean, just to add. I mean, as they were approaching uh, Makkah and, and the Kaaba, some of the companions, they were doing a. You know, when you go on a conquest, you have certain uh, slogans, right? Yeah. What we call them, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor Say, there was a slogan which was about, "This is the day of retribution," and the Prophet them corrected him. I said, yes. no, today is not the day of retribution. Today is the day of mercy. Yes. It's the day we're going to show them mercy. Yeah. So the point here is that if the Prophet wanted to, if he wanted to, there could have been bloodshed in Makkah that day. Mm -hmm. could have been. And one could even argue he was absolutely right for it to happen. But he didn't. In the yes. same way, Allahuddin al-Ayyubi, when he took Jerusalem back, yes. from a Sharia point of view, he could have murked off everyone. Mm. He could have killed off everyone and mm. forced the jizya on everyone. He didn't. Mm. He just he just kept the Templars. He punished the Templars because these guys were the, the most dangerous shayateen. But many of the Christian knights, he let them go. He didn't he didn't enforce the jizya. He invited the Jews back. When Salahuddin al Ayyubi could have to seek vengeance of what happened a hundred years ago when the Crusaders were killing babies and saying "Dus volt, Dus volt," and was slaughtered where Masjid al-Aqsa the blood was up to the knees yeah if he wanted to he could have done this yeah because we know that within within the, the the laws of engagement within the Sharia there is a particular that there's different realities that you can different choices you can make if a town or a city refuses to give up and chooses to fight you Salahuddin could have done it he didn't so you're absolutely mm -hmm. right they fear a reciprocation of what we may we what they expect that may yeah. not be the case, and that's yeah. why. And, and I think I think people they gotta know this, man. It's like you know, don't worry. You know, just be, I think we just some of our dawa is just gotta be like, listen, guys, relax, baby. It's you cool. Know, just yeah, it's, it's it's don't worry. You know, let the dawa happen. Just hey, let yeah. the, you'll be happy. You know, you don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> you know. I said to John, 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 there's gonna be no there's there's no Saracens are gonna come from North yeah. Africa raise the black flag because you'll raise the black flag yourself when you see how civilization lives trust me yeah and, yes. and then he, and, and, he thought, and, and it's the truth it's yeah. the truth um we gotta you know what we gotta talk about in the future some of your personal experiences with some of these journalists yeah, yeah. you know like uh, we, we gotta do that inshallah uh we gotta get you back on the program like this flew by man like we yeah. we were speaking for like two hours just like that like, over, 
yeah, yeah, this has been like I think over two hours we've been talking, subhanAllah. And it just like just just went like that, man. Subhanallah. So I think we gotta get you back uh inshallah on the program uh again and we gotta have these discussions. I think you're right, man. The first step is to have some of these discussions. We have to peel back, like you know, there's a curtain uh where a lot of what's happening in the background by, by the powers that be, we need to pull back that curtain and expose it for the people. And we need some critical thinking. We need to have these passionate discussions and we need to show that the haq will stand forever. The truth will stand forever. It'll stand the test of time. You know, like a lot, a lot of uh, things that are done with emotion or with superficial effects, they fade over time and we want to stand up for the haq. So uh, inshallah, I want to have you back on the program again, we're going to bring you back, of course, you know, once uh, things settle down, uh, travel-wise, too, we'll bring you back as well, uh, Canada, uh, show you around. Uh, we'll have, uh, Likewise, we're waiting for you to come up to the UK, Akhi. Yeah, <laughs> inshallah, inshallah. I, we had a podcast with uh, Dr. Salman uh, not too long ago. It was really nice podcast, too. So you guys have some really nice uh, brothers. And that's, I think that's a benefit of, of social media and um, uh, of like these types of forums and discussions that we need to build upon. I think there's so many distractions and so many things that are just noise. I think we can create some substance on here. You know what I mean? I think substance is missing. You know what I mean? A lot of the nourishment we're getting, it just snacks an unhealthy diet. We need to give people something nourishing, you know? And so like for many people like, yeah, this might be long, two hours, but I hope it's nourishing for you. It's nourishing for the soul. It's not just trying to copy uh, what pop culture has dictated to us or what other people are jumping on, you know, the, on the bandwagon with. We want to give you something that's going to be nourishing, not today, but hopefully that uh, can uh, have a lasting effect. So Jazamakhar, brother, for that. And uh, we invite you again uh, to be on the podcast. We're going to keep this train moving, inshallah. Keep this caravan of khair going. And... Um, uh, to uh, everyone out there uh, on uh, our podcast and the different platforms, this is actually going to be broadcast on different platforms. And also there's like a like a TV channel uh, that this is going to be broadcast now as well uh, in, in Canada. So uh, how can people uh, reach you and how can people like get connected with a lot of the uh, Muslim oriented journalism that you're doing? So bro, you can obviously find me on, on all the social media platforms on Instagram on Twitter and on Facebook. But in terms of the Muslim journalism news that we do, you can go to www.fivepillarsuk.com. You'll find us again on all our platforms. And yeah, I mean, have, have a look at the kind of news that we're producing. We also cover, we try our best to cover North America to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, brothers and sisters, my concluding thoughts would be, find me in the usual channels, but the most important take home message I want you guys who are listening and, and watch this podcast is, the way we go about our daily life, we do management of many things in many ways. We do it. We manage it. In the same way, when our affairs and our responsibilities to Islam and Muslims should also be managed like this. When you go to work, when you study, when you spend time with your family, your friends, your community, your loved ones, etc., you do your work, you have deadlines, you have essays, etc. The same way you can manage your priorities for the deen. And the dawah can also be prioritized like this. There's multi-levels and multi-layers, and you can do it. And if there's anything that we you should have taken from this podcast with me and Dr. Saeed, is that anything is possible, 
So, so as long as you're upon the haq, because as Dr. Say said, the haq will always prevail. Um, don't fall into popular trends and don't let and don't subscribe to anything that you have doubts over from an Islamic point of view. Um, mm-hmm. That's my take-home message for everyone. But yeah, man, check me out on Five Pillars, YouTube, Instagram, website, Twitter, and even my personal accounts. You can find me on all of them on Diddy Hussein. You'll find me on all those platforms, inshallah. Inshallah. And next uh, podcast is going to be Thursday night, 8 p.m. MST, 7 p.m. PST. And we have a very powerful episode planned. We're going to have two uh, guests. We're going to have Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick, and we're going to have Sheikh uh, Muhammad Yafa. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the rhetoric that has uh, occurred with certain politicians in Canada and um, uh, also certain media personalities where they have stated how bad is racism really in Canada and is there really any structural racism? So for those of you who are in the know, you know that some people who have experienced no racism are making this commentary. So we're going to have people who have the Canadian experience, Dr. Mm-hmm. Abdullah Hakim Quick and Sheikh Yafa, talk about that. So how bad is racism really, right? Uh, said the guy who's never experienced any racism. So uh, as always, uh, everyone, we remind uh, ourselves that we want to live by the haq. We want to die by the haq. And just when you think life is stuck, tune in to Life Haq. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.